for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Today is May 25th, 2021, and today's guest is none other than Clint Campbell from the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. All right, all right. Welcome to the Fall Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Blasey, and today's episode is 162. And like I said before, today's guest is Clint Campbell from the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. Now, if you've been living under a rock for a while and you've never heard of Truth from the Stand, I feel like you guys should really go and check it out because Clint does a really good job with his podcast. He's very knowledgeable and he's been doing it a long time. I've been listening to his podcast for a very long time. So go and take a peek at that. But I kind of want to, I'm going to make today short, today's intro short. Uh, I want to get right to this interview because I really enjoyed talking to Clint and talking about everything we did. We, we kind of, we jump around a little bit, but the premise of the podcast was talking about traveling to hunt. He is from PA, lives in PA, and he travels everywhere to hunt. And he actually did a trailer build, a cargo trailer build to be his hunting casa, if you will. When he travels, he gets the, he lives in that. So we talk about that a lot. We talk about, he's a public land hunter. So we do some public land tactics and everything. And I'm, I'm just going to kind of leave it there, but there's a lot in this episode and it's really cool podcast. So, uh, I, I know you guys will enjoy it. Um, lastly, before I get to this, this interview, I do want to say, you know, we're coming up on Memorial Weekend. Hopefully you guys have a good, safe, long weekend and uh, get to take a break from everything and go to the lake, go camping, go whatever, drinking, whatever. I mean, just go have fun, you know, but do it safe. Do it safe. Um, Other than that, please go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating, leave a review. I greatly appreciate it. 
Um, and don't forget to go back and listen to a lot of the other episodes that we've done in the past. Last week, uh, we did the episode of When I Killed a Turkey. We did a live podcast while I killed it. So that was a cool episode. Go take a peek at that. And that's about it, all I got today. So with that being said, I'm going to get over this interview with Clint. Thank you guys very much for the support. Thank you for all the downloads. And we will see you right here next week on the Fall Podcast. All right, welcome back to the Fall Podcast. And today I've got another fellow podcaster on, Clint Campbell, from the Truth From The Stand podcast, man. How's it going, Clint? I'm good, brother. How you doing, man? Thanks for uh, having me on. I appreciate it. Looking forward to a good chat about deer hunting and some good company, man. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I said this to you before we record. I feel like I know you. I've listened to your podcast for a long time, so this is this is cool for me to get, uh, get to know you a little bit more and hopefully, you know, spark something up here that might be a recurring theme that uh, you could come on the podcast, man. I'm, I'm excited for it. Nice, man. Well, I'm, I'm, I assure you I will underwhelm. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I, I like having other podcasters on because um, they get the game. They get it. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's like a lot of times, you know, I'll have like Byron Horton on or Kurt Guy or mm-hmm. something like that. And sometimes it's like you ask questions, but like, you know, Kurt or Byron, they've like asked me questions, not that I wanted them to, but it's like, it kind of over like the podcast host, like takes over and it's like, makes for good conversation. So I always yeah. thought that was kind of neat. It is nice, man. Cause I mean, if, if you do this long enough, you know, we've all had, you know, guests here and there that, you know, are, um, maybe just a little microphone shy, you know what I mean? Yep. It's like, it's yep. not, it's not everyone's, it's not everyone's cup of tea necessarily. Yep. Um, you know, I can think off the top of my head, a few of those that I've had and you're just kind of like, it's, uh, it, it can be a little bit painful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's, there's, there's some awkward silences that happen. We are like, is somebody going to say something? I guess yeah. not. So yeah, yeah and exactly. It's, it's tough doing it over the phone too. I mean, I, I, I like it, but I don't like it. You know, the conversation goes so much better when you can see someone face to face and kind of react the way that they're yeah. reacting. I get that, but it's like, just you know, I mean, the podcast, the, I think the uniqueness of a podcast is like being able to do it wherever and whenever a lot of the times as well. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it, it, and you're right. It is hard whenever you're, you know, constantly doing over the phone. I think it, it, it becomes kind of an acquired uh, skill to a degree. You know, I do a lot of them over the phone just, you know, for the past five years. So it's kind of become something I, I guess I'm okay at. I certainly like to do them in person, you know, the, 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 as often as I possibly can, just for that reason. You can kind of see, you know, when someone's running out of steam and they're done with their point, you, you can kind of, they give you some visual cues. Sure. You know what I mean? Yep. Or you're like, okay, all right, what, what's my next question based off of what they just said? Like, where am I going from here? And it gives you an opportunity to kind of start to get ready to pivot. Yep. When you're doing it over the phone, it's like sometimes you just get like that abrupt stop. <laughs> that exactly. you weren't ready for it you're like i don't know where the hell we're going <laughs> i've had that a couple times you know yeah, so i'll try i'll try not to do that to you all right it's like we'll make that agreement i appreciate that and i've had guys too that are like you can just tell on the other line you can't see them obviously but you can hear them they're just shitting razor blades like they're just oh, yeah. sweating like they they're nervous and it's like hey you know it's it's okay. Like it's, mm-hmm. uh, you, we're just talking like two buddies over the phone. Just think of it that way. You know, it's, it's funny what the record button will do to somebody just <laughs> knowing, that, just knowing that it's on. Right. Cause, uh, it, I found this out whenever in my past life, whenever I was a musician and doing that for a living and stuff and outside of playing, it's like I was working in recording studios and stuff like that. And I learned with my drummer who was an amazing drummer, like just 
unreal kind of guy legitimately was sponsored by a pretty big drum company when he was like 15 years old he was on the like the child musician prodigy watch okay modern drummer did a write-up on him when he was like 15 years old which is crazy um and i met him when we were in like our early 20s and uh, a phenomenal drummer and could do everything from like jazz to like metal whatever you wanted to do like he was just very very skilled and very trained and um we would go into the studio though. We'd you know write a bunch of tunes and we would get ready to go into the studio and like they would sound killer and he just like the drum tracks sound like sound great leading up to the studio time. We get to the studio and he would just completely shit his pants. No way. Like you put the you put the you hit the record button and as soon as the record button would go on, it was he would start fumbling over things and just like he would get tense. And so I started just like telling him we were sound checking. Like hey, we're gonna sound check. Let's yep. run this song real quick. Let's rehearse. You know, and and we're just gonna do a quick sound check for the for levels or whatever. And we would run a song and I would just have the engineer always hit the record button when we would be sound checking. Yep. And that's usually the takes we would use okay. would be his, his sound check takes. That's Cause they were always, they were just always way more like powerful and passionate and full of like, you know, dynamics and stuff like that, that you just didn't get whenever he saw the red light go on, you know, and he was young too at the time. I think he was like 21. So, you know, whenever we got a little older and we were more seasoned and playing together, I, we didn't have to worry about that as much. He kind of became a, he became a studio drummer. Truthfully, that's what he does now. Yep. Um, but he was just very raw and talented. And, you know, I was kind of, uh, I guess, challenged with trying to uh, break a wild horse to a degree. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but, no, that that's kind of the same thing we do with video. I mean, when we're doing interviews with people that really haven't been in front of the camera a lot, you know, they've a lot of cameras have tally lights on the front, you know, mm-hmm. that that hit when you hit record, they, you know, that big red light's right there. Well, we'll turn that tally light off and we'll kind of do the same thing, like sound check in a way, like, hey, you know, let's let's do a couple of these just so you know the questions and just kind of give me your answers. And you know, sometimes you'll get the guy or or whoever we're interviewing, they're they're kind of looking off like in La La Land, but they're saying like great answers, like really yeah. off the cuff. And it's like, man, we kind of got to use that. You know what I mean? Because when that, right. like what you said, when the record light goes on, man, it is clam up time <laughs> yeah you know? yeah when you do when you do the old the old uh, switcheroo on them too you get the opportunity to get the uh, you know the ron burgundy outtakes of like the screaming <laughs> yeah. like you know or loud or noises or, yeah, <laughs> that or you know the what is it, the bill o'reilly well, we'll do it live yeah that fuck one, it, like, we'll do it live <laughs> yeah exactly and then i think johnny carson had one too i don't know if you ever heard that but johnny everyone thought johnny carson was like this like saint right oh really was, uh, Oh man, yeah. Just I think it's on YouTube, uh, but but just Google it. Like Johnny Carson, you know, live outtake or whatever it is. Like he loses his mind. Like and it's so hilarious. No way. He's like he's completely losing his shit, and then he's like, "Let's do this," you know, or whatever he <laughs> says to do it. And they turn it on. And he's like, "Hey, this is Johnny Carson." Like just falls right into like the like the you know the grandpa of America, Johnny Carson. Oh. You know that everyone that everyone knew, but like he was a complete maniac leading up to it. It's That's hilarious. crazy. I get yeah. so, you know, and you've said showing you, my age there with the Johnny Carson. <laughs> you are a little bit. But, hey, yeah. I, I, you know, I've watched a lot of Johnny Carson, but a lot of it was VHS. Like it wasn't live uh, when we were doing it. So. Yeah, so I did watch some live. I'm showing <laughs> okay. my age here. It was later in my. You know, it was when I was a really, you know, I was a little kid. And my grandfather yeah. used to love watching it, and my dad did too. Truthfully, so it's like I kind of watched it with, you know, with them, especially my grandfather. He was a big Johnny Carson guy. So I got you. I got. I got. I got uh, 
but I think it was good because, like, he, in my opinion, I got to see him and like all the other late night people after him, and like to me, he still is kind of like the gold standard for late night. Yeah, so definitely. So, in all the years doing a podcast, what? Have you ever done an interview where you're like, you get off, you 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 stop recording, you're like, man, I really don't know if I can run that. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I've had I've had some of those, you know, for sure. Where you're like, man, I'm just not sure. And then you know, but the other thing is too, man, is that you know, um, we're always kind of our own, you know, worst critics to a sure. degree, right? And I've always kind of had this philosophy, even when I was in the band, it's like you got to release the, the good and the bad because if you don't, like the the bad's gonna hang around. Yep. And you just got to get, you just got to get it out. Yep. Um, you know what I mean? So, and not that any, you know, guest was, you know, bad or terrible or whatever. Sometimes it's my fault. Sometimes I'm like, man, I just didn't ask like great questions in that, in that session or, you know, I was unsure or, you know, how to steer the conversation. So it's not always the guest's fault. You know what I mean? It's like, there's right. plenty of times where I screw the pooch and just didn't, you know, I'll get done and I'll listen back as an editing. And I'm like, man, I missed an opportunity to ask a really good question there. Yeah. You know, or man, I missed an opportunity to ask a really good question here. You know, oh man, I should have followed up with this. You know. Yep. And you know, so it's just it. You know, it's it it, it goes both ways. You know, it's like I've screwed up pl- just as many as anyone else has. Yeah. You know, for me. Yeah, and you know that I get that like weekly. I feel like when I listen to them back, I'm like, and I'll tell you what, like the first thirty or maybe even part more podcasts that I've ever, I ever did was like, I can't go back and listen to them. They're absolutely oh, brutal. Like yeah, I can yeah. not listen to them. <laughs> my whole, my whole first season. I'm like, that guy's an idiot. Yep. Like <laughs> who is that guy? <laughs> yeah. Know? I'm like, there's, I don't, I don't know why anyone even listens to this. <laughs> my, my studio started in one of our closets in our old house. For some nice. reason, I thought it would be good to start a podcast when my daughter was like basically born. So right. I'd record when she was sleeping at night, and I felt like I was like so quiet and monotone. Yeah. You know, you're like yeah. you're not trying to wake up the house, but it was like, oh yeah. my gosh, looking yeah. back, and I'm like, why did I do that? Yeah, my office is right up against my daughter's bedroom. So whenever I do podcast, she's like, so tonight she's like, Dad, I'm sleeping in your bed tonight because you're too loud. <laughs> so. I've lost my sleeping spot, at least for the time being, as, as we sit here. I got you. Well, you can blame that on me. <laughs> no, no we're, all, we're all good. <laughs> well, good deal, man. I, you know, I enjoy your podcast, listen to it a lot, listen to it for a couple of years now. And if anybody hasn't listened to it, go check it out. You get, you do a great job over there. Um, I do want to first get off. I, I want to, I got to ask a selfish question here. I'm sure. a coffee connoisseur and you have a coffee company, Skull Brew Coffee. And I want to know a little bit more about that. Like, what's your inspiration behind that? Like, where did it come from? And I guess, you know, why did you want to start it? Right, yeah. Uh, great question. My wife wondered the same thing. Uh, <laughs> so, um, no, it, it was, uh, yeah, I'm just kind of a, I like to make things. You know, that's really what it comes down to. It's like, it goes back again, not to harp on the band stuff, but it's like, you know, Playing live wasn't my favorite thing. Being in the studio creating was always my favorite thing. And that's kind of what led to the podcast too, was just making stuff, creating stuff. And um, we were sitting around at at one point. I was, uh, you know, kind of thinking about like, what would I like to start? Like maybe, maybe another side business, you know, because I had the podcast going and I was always kind of like, I'd like to start something that would be kind of associated to a degree. And I was literally in a deer blind one day with my buddy Wilson and I every now and then in late season we'll go out and hunt together because he has some access to some, you know, small private parcels around where we live. And we'll go out and just try to maybe whack a few does in late season. And he was like, Hey, I'm going to go hunt this one property. Do you want to come along? And I was like, sure. I wasn't doing anything that Saturday. So we went out, we were sitting in the blind and 
we didn't really see any deer and we were just kind of talking and he's from the Pacific Northwest originally. So Washington, so coffee, big deal in that area. Yep. And we started talking about coffee and you know, the truth of the matter is, is I actually st- had another business that I actually built the business plan for and went and pitched investors prior to the coffee thing years, years ago. I think it ended about the time I started the podcast, but it was a, a craft whiskey distillery uh, to open in Pennsylvania okay. to, to make, to make, to eventually make bourbon, but to start as craft whiskey. Um, and I just, I got a lot of the, I had most of the investment I needed. I was just a little bit shy and I just wasn't willing to kind of rescale the business opportunity. So I kind of, I dumped it and and folded it. And so my buddy and I were talking about that whiskey business and and we started kind of talking about coffee and and I love coffee. And I was like, man, I should start a coffee business. He's like, you should totally start a coffee business. And six months later I started a coffee business. That's really, (laughs) that's really how it started. Um, but the, the, the rationale behind it was, is I was trying to think of like, what can I do that I can, you know, start relatively quickly uh, to, you know, to get it off the ground somewhat quickly. Um, Because the goal was really to try to figure out a way to give back more to conservation because, you know, I had realized, you know, as I was, you know, going through my hunting journey that there's so much that I get from the outdoors, um, you know, and, and I'll never be able to pay the debt that I have to the outdoors, you know, in my lifetime. For sure. And so, um, I think it was actually the year after I got back from Montana and it was just like that trip out West hunting out West and seeing that landscape and experiencing, you know, you know, getting drawn back on an elk and having close encounters with mule deer and elk and, you know, seeing, you know, just all the things you want to see when you go on a Western DIY kind of backcountry hunt like that. It really kind of made me have a different level of appreciation for wild things and wild places. I, I had an appreciation before, but it just really kind of gave me a different perspective. And so that was really the kind of genesis of it. And the whole goal was to try to create something that would, you know, create a revenue stream that I could continually give back on a consistent basis, aside from, you know, just paying my dues to like the different conservation groups that I'm a member of or whatever, which is great, you know. But I was like, you know, I have a skill set in marketing and advertising. Could I use that in some way, shape, or form? to benefit the outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, and so that's what I did. And so we started a skull brew coffee company. We donate, you know, uh, 10% of our profits, uh, back to conservation, uh, organizations. And when you go to the site and you buy coffee, you can click a drop down menu. And there's a couple of conservation groups in there that you can say that you want your portion of your proceeds to be donated toward. Um, and we have three roasts. We have a, a dark roast, a medium roast, roast and a light roast. It's a Papua New Guinea, a Colombian, and uh, Ethiopia Harar. And then we just recently released um, some backcountry packs, which are kind of uh, single serve pour over packs for when you're traveling, hunting, camping, whatever the case is. You don't have to have shitty coffee anymore when you do those things and those instant things. I've tried every every kind you can possibly think <laughs> of um, from every brand imaginable, and they all suck. And so I got tired of that. So I just decided to make my own pour over version of our coffee, and, uh, and it's killer. So that's yeah, awesome. that's, kind of the, that's kind of the story behind it, man. That's cool, man. That's really cool. And you know, I, I've heard you kind of tell that story before on your podcast. I wanted to get it out here for for this. And I, I was asking before, you know, any way I could help out, like, to get the word out there. Like, I love how you're giving back. And I want to figure out a way where I can give back a little bit as well. Um, anywhere I can help, like, I'd love to be able to do that. Um, but that's cool. Sure. I, like I said, I'm a coffee guy. I really enjoy it. And your brand. I like, I like the looks of the brand and the name of it. And, like, it's just kind of like something... 
I feel like you look at and you want to be a part of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And I mean, the brand name was funny, kind of how it kind of came about was I was fooling around with doing European mounts, taxidermy, like European mounts in my garage. And I had like domestic beetles and they smelled terrible. My wife hated it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I was kind of fooling around with that. And like the idea was, was that I was going to do some like on the side, you know, European mount stuff for folks, you know, just like friends and just local people and stuff like that. And that was what I, I was going to use that money to create the coffee business was the okay. idea. And then, um, uh, I went on a hunting trip and then, uh, the, the heater broke in my, my bug, my bug box and they all froze to death. So oh, when I came home from that, oh. I had no more bugs. And so, you know, I ended up just footing the bill myself to start the coffee business. But, um, that's kind of where the name came from because I was making skulls in the garage. So skull brew, that's brew cool, coffee, man. you know, so that was kind of how the name came, came about. That's awesome. That's really neat. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's sweet. And, and good on you, man, for wanting to do something to, to give back. I, I really, that make that's really cool. That is. Yeah. And I, and I can't take all the credit, man. My wife does a lot of work for it, you know, all last summer. Cause I was building that trailer, you know, I, all my weekends were eaten up by, you know, kind of, you know, converting that conversion trailer, that a cargo trailer that I had, that, you know, my daughter and her basically did every farmer's market on their own last year. Really? Just themselves. Yeah. Um, and so they're a big, they're a big part of it. And it, it, the other part of it too, man, is I wanted my daughter to see that you can create something on your own and create your own destiny. You don't have to go to work for somebody else. For sure. And so I wanted her to kind of see that and have a part in it and, you know, take some ownership of certain things. So she goes to the markets, man, she helps, she rings people up, she promotes, you know, she helps pack things up and, She's a, she's a good worker and, she, and cool. people tip, tip her cause she's cute. So she always likes that too. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. Good job. That that's cool. Well, speaking of your trailer, I don't know if a lot of people listen to this, know, you know, your trailer conversion, um, how you did that with that cargo trailer, but that's kind of the basis, not the trailer anyway, but why you did the trailers, what I want to get into today. And, and that's like traveling to hunt. I mean, you're, you live up in PA, right? You're up in PA. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Well, yeah, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I did a short stint in Florida for a while whenever I was doing the music stuff, but been back in PA for, I guess, going on 11 years now, roughly. Um, Yeah, I just, I live, you know, north of, of, of Philadelphia. Okay, I got you. So you're traveling a lot for all your hunts, basically out of state. I mean, you do hunt PA mm-hmm. and everything around you a little bit, but I mean, you're doing a lot of traveling, and that's kind of what I want to get into today is like traveling in, uh, traveling on a budget to hunt, and then just some things like when you get to a new piece. I've got questions for like, you know, how do you break it down, and you know, mm-hmm. and and how do you get away from the intimidation factor? And then one big one, I'm not going to tell you right now. It's it's something that I deal with when I'm trying to find a stand location. But I want to know, mm-hmm. you pick your brain about it too. But that's kind of yeah. what I want to get into. If you're good with that, yeah, man, let's do it. Well, I guess first and foremost, I mean, you built this trailer. So tell tell everybody about the trailer first. And I guess the big question I want to know is you know, you were probably doing it for one reason of to like, you know, save money and be more efficient. So mm-hmm. I guess, did it save you money after using it? And was it more efficient? Yeah. So it was really a long-term play. So just in uh, full disclaimer here, anybody who's not going to travel consistently, you know, it, it's probably not the right move because it does cost some money to do. Like, and if you're going to just go like one year and then maybe in three years from now, you're probably better off either camping it or just, you know, getting a hotel close by or whatever. Um, but for me, I travel every year for multiple weeks. And so I know I'm going to be going somewhere. And the thing that I was really kind of struggling with to 
you know, to a certain extent was, you know, I was either staying at like getting a cabin somewhere or, um, you know, or staying at someone's house or whatever, the, whatever the case is, right. Or renting a hotel room or whatever it is. And just, and it gets expensive. Right. And, and that was one kind of component of it. The other part of it, and it really kind of dawned on me more so whenever I went to uh, Iowa and I was hunting a particular piece of public in Iowa and I had a cabin that was close by, which was kind of like lucky, right? I got a cabin that was like, they usually all booked up. It doesn't so happen just, like that all the time. <laughs> right, right. And yeah. so it, it was relatively close to where I was hunting. So I kind of lucked out and I was fortunate that this piece was pretty big that I was hunting too. So after that hunt, I was like, man, I really got lucky to where it's like I was finding good deer. I didn't have a lot of pressure. It's Iowa, so you're not going to have a lot of pressure, at least in context to what I'm used to in Pennsylvania. Um, and I had good deer to chase and I was on deer. And so like it worked out. I was like, but man, if it hadn't and I could only draw once every four years, I was kind of stuck like staying at that one spot. Yep. And you know how I hunt just on the ground typically in general, it's like, I'm a pretty mobile person. Like I'm, I move a fair amount and, you know, try to find the hot sign and hunt the hot sign, you know, all the things that you know you should be doing. And I wanted my ability to jump from public to public to mimic how I hunt on a particular piece. So I didn't want to be locked into a spot. And the perfect example of that was this past year going to Missouri where, you know, tethered was filming, you know, the, the hunt. And so added, added a little bonus of like, you know, definitely have to try to figure out how to find deer. I didn't have a chance to scout any of it before we got there. So it was all a completely like shout out to John Eberhardt, completely freelance hunt, you yep. know, which I you know, learned and got the confidence to do from, from him. Um, and ended up on the first piece and, you know, in two days, like we found deer, but like there was just a lot of pressure that was, that was kind of rolling in. And this was the first week in November. Um, so we left that spot, went to another spot that was about an hour and a half away. And we hunted that for like two days, got on deer, had, had a good encounter and a bunch of pressure rolled in. And so we were like, let's bounce from here, went to another spot and I ended up hitting one and losing it, unfortunately on the last day, but got into deer within two days in the third spot. If I didn't have the trailer, I would have been locked into that first spot the entire week, Uh you know? And so the trailer really allowed me to just kind of go and find you know, try to find success and not be kind of hamstrung by where I was at. And just, you know, you know, I don't like to necessarily just play the hand that I'm dealt. I, I want a new hand sure, <laughs> if I can have it. Right. Yep. And so that was really, that was really the kind of the genesis of, of creating the trailer was that the added bonus is over the course of, you know, three, three seasons or whatever, the amount of time I'm going to spend in it to scout, travel to scout, travel to hunt is certainly going to pay for itself just the, in the amount that I would spend in hotel rooms and stuff like that, you yeah. know, over the course of the, over the course of three seasons. Yeah. I could definitely see that. And honestly, uh, me thinking, you know, my biggest thing would be convenience, you know, mm-hmm. like to me, like you, you're hunting public land. You've got a lot to think about. Let's, let's just break that down. Like you've never been to this piece. You've never scouted it. So there's a lot of mind games going there. You got some pressure. You're mm-hmm. only going to be here for so long. And it's like, you want convenient. Now you were able mm-hmm. to like hook onto your trailer and go to the next one, unhook mm-hmm. and know after you get done with a freelance hunt, you're coming right back to your trailer and you're like, everything's there. You know, mm-hmm. you're not moving like the convenience alone, I think would be worth, worth it in, in the well, long run, wouldn't it? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, that convenience factor was, was huge for jumping from piece to piece. I mean, we wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise. I mean, we could have tent camped, you know what I mean? But there's also when you're out grinding, you know, cause that was a two week trip. Like, so that was the first week. The second week I was in another state for, a, for another seven or eight days. Yep. So I was out for like 15, 16 days straight in that thing, you know? So 
trying to tent camp and that with like different conditions and stuff like that. And, you know, just, you can do it. I'm not saying you can't, you can't do it. And plenty of, plenty of people do. But for me, it's like, if I'm going to go out and grind like that and hunt all day and put on miles, some days I'm putting on, you know, for whitetails, I might put on six, seven, maybe eight miles, depending on how far I have to walk to find the sign I want to hunt. Right. So, you know, it's, you know, I want to, I want a semi comfortable place to lay my head is really what it comes down to because I don't want to feel like dog shit the next day to try to go do it again, yep. you know? And so, um, so that was really kind of one of the reasons. The other reason is just in the planning process. Like part of the, like the hard part of the planning, whenever I would go to a, a different state to hunt was just trying to figure out where I'm going to stay. That's close by, you know what I mean? That's reasonably priced and right. will fit what I need. And so I just completely take that out of the equation. Cause not that you're supposed to do this. Like, so this is not the dirty little secret, but the way I built it is, I made it kind of, it looks still like a trailer and it doesn't look so much like a camper other than like the window that's in it, but could just be for events. So it's, I'm kind of stealth camping in places and yep. maybe pulling off along the side of the road somewhere where it's like, I just want to walk in right here. And it looks like, Oh, someone's truck's broken down there. And yeah. That's where I'm camping. You know what I mean? <laughs> yep. So, you know, so it's like, I'm doing some of that just so I'm cutting down on the amount of time that I have to like, you know, walk or drive to a place. I'm trying to camp as close as I can to, where I'm going to enter that way. I'm just being as efficient as possible. Okay. Yeah. That makes total sense. And so, I mean, you didn't answer my questions. I mean, was it, was it efficient, you know, and was it, Mm -hmm. was it worth building it? I guess. So I I would think you're saying check the box. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, the efficiency was ridiculous, you know, just in terms of just having everything that you need, I was able to eat there, you know, have a solar generator. We can get into the build and like what all, what all is included, but it's a little home away from home. So it's like, I don't really give up much, you know, from a comfort standpoint, other than like a shower or whatever, yep. but I, I built, I built a, a shower to take along. So I have one of those if I need it. Um, so certainly efficient and it was totally worth, worth the build. I mean, mm-hmm. just, you know, what I would have spent you know, think about 15 days and you have a cheap hotel room just, or a, a cheap cabin or whatever, say it's like a hundred bucks a day, you know, or whatever. Right. it's like, it's 1500 bucks for that trip alone. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It is what it would have cost me in just the, you know, living accommodations for the, for the two weeks. Yep. How, uh, how big is the trailer? Uh, it's six by 10. So it's small, you know, okay. my, I originally wanted to do a seven by 12. Um, but you know, what happened was my grandfather passed away and then my, my, my grandmother had this old trailer sitting at the farm. Um, <clears throat> my grandfather did a lot of woodworking and crafting. And that's where he kept like all his materials and stuff. And she just wanted rid of it. So I was like, well, you know, I was like, what do you want for it? And she's like, well, give me 800 bucks. And I was like, perfect. You know, I was like, here you go. I was like, yeah, it was smaller than I wanted, you know? Um, but you know, in, in hindsight, it's probably perfect because it's so small. I can just fit it into almost anywhere. Right. Like I don't need, that was the other thing too. It's like, I didn't want something so big that I had to kind of figure out like, where can I park? Like he, with this thing, it doesn't matter if I can put my truck there, I can put this thing there. Yeah, definitely. You got me yeah. thinking, man, my dad's got an old cargo trailer like that. He was a contractor for 25 years. He's going to be listening to this podcast. So dad, if you're listening, I think we need <laughs> to convert your trailer. <laughs> there you go, man. I It's like, I learned a lot from doing it, man. So it's like, I can totally give you a ton of points. I'm going like to be picking your brain. There you go. Yep. Awesome. Well, cool, yeah. man. That, that's, that kind of checks the box on those for sure. So now, Getting into the build and everything, and so is this the first, this last fall, was it the first fall with it? Yeah, it was. It was the okay. first first season. The funny thing was, is I was planning to try to, I was planning to try to do like a hunt just close to my house, because there, there's a place that I use that has, that's water access. It's a little bit of a, it's not a terrible drive. It's like a half hour from me. 
but to take the kayak and all that stuff and set it up and get it out of the truck and do all that stuff. It takes a little extra time. And I was trying to get this hunt in in the morning before work and get back. Um, and we can talk about that too. Cause I built it to where I can actually work out of it. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, so my, my plan was to take, take a maiden voyage that was local, that was close to me in case something happened, it broke down or something like that, that I was, you know, not far from home to try to take care of stuff. But it ended up being that, <laughs> I finished it up, didn't get a chance to take a maiden voyage. So it's maiden voyage was like, was hooking it to the back of my truck and driving like a uh, thousand miles, 1100 <laughs> miles to Missouri. That was the maiden voyage. Oh my gosh. No, no better way than just throwing it right into the fire. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm not sure how this is going to work out. I hope it all works. But here what, we go. What year is the trailer? Do you know? Oh man. It is a 96. Okay. So she's old. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, she looks every bit of old too. It's yeah. uh, it's got this really cool distressed, purple paint because my grandmother's favorite color was purple perfect and so it's a purple trailer that looks it's all like sun faded i love and that. <laughs> yeah people keep asking me, it's like are you gonna wrap it with like a skull brew wrap or like a truth from the stand wrap i'm like heck no man i was like it's a billboard I was like, <laughs> yeah i was like then i'm giving away like where i'm at i was like no, yeah. no dice it's like i'm gonna keep the the silly purple looking trailer yeah now and this is me asking selfish questions now because i know i got a trailer that i can convert but uh what how was the frame and everything? Did you have to do any, you know, cause I know a lot of those frames, mm-hmm. they get kind of rusty and everything like that. And the floorboards and everything are kind of mm-hmm. rotted out. But like, how was the structure of it to begin with? Or did you really have to revamp this thing? No, I mean the, 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 the bones of it was pretty good. I mean, fortunately my grandfather, he's, you know, an old, old timer farmer. So, I mean, he buys something once and he buys it for life and takes care of it, you know? So it was, it was pretty well taken care of. There was a little bit of rot in the floorboard and it's pretty typical with trailers that, you know, it'll be back behind like one of the tires somewhere. Truthfully, I think it was probably less from that and and more so from, you know, as he got up in age and was getting sick, like it it sat out, then he moved it out of of the, the barn and it was sitting next to the barn and I think the tall grass just kind of grew up around it and like the moisture from like the dew over the years getting up under under it and that particular side is what kind of rotted that part of the floorboard out. So there was really only one section. It was like one foot by one foot that I had to replace. I got you. And so, and so I just cut that out and then, you know, uh, metal screwed that back into the back into the back into the frame and that was pretty much good to go. But everything else was pretty, pretty solid on it. Yep. Now, when you were getting into this build, did you have a budget that you were hoping to stay within or was it just like, well, I'll, I'll figure it out when I get done? Uh, yes and no. Um, I, I didn't really want to spend any more than like three grand if I could help it, Yep. you know, roughly. And I stayed right around, right around that. If I'm not mistaken, three to four thousand, I might've been closer to four. With buying the trailer um, or is that just doing everything with, to it? with buying the trailer i'm pretty that's sure that's pretty damn good it might have been just a little over for it with buying the trailer gosh i feel like that's it. pretty good but yeah i mean the thing was too is like and some people out there listening you know might be like well why didn't he just buy like a used camper or something like that right well if you get a camper for four or five grand like it's it's not going to last you those things are built to fall apart yeah. that's the number one thing the insulation's crap in them they're not great and stuff like that and there's all kinds of things internally that can go wrong from heat to electrical to whatever I built this thing to where I'm I'm hunting and not fixing it when I'm out hunting. Right. Like so, there's nothing that's in the walls. Like it, nothing's wired in the walls. I did that on purpose because I wanted to run everything off of like AC power from my solar generator or off of batteries because I don't want to be I don't or recharging you know rechargeable batteries that I plug into like the solar generator to recharge while I'm out hunting. That way I can use the lights at night or whatever. Yeah. Because I don't want to be 
I don't want something to short out in the wall and then I'm without light, you know, for the trip or I'm trying to figure out how to fix the lights or whatever it is. Like I didn't want, I wanted as few things that could possibly break and ruin a hunt as possible. That way if something breaks and it's not critical, I just wait till I get home to deal with it. Yep. You know what I mean? So that was kind of like, that was kind of the approach. So, you know, I spent probably more on it than a lot of people would need to, um, because I kind of went overboard with the heat. You know, I went with like a, uh, I went with a vented heater. It's called a Dickinson Marine heater, and it's really built for boat cabins. Okay, um, and and I it's around nine thousand BTU, so it's way more heat than I need for that small a space. But I mean, you know, on nights when it got down like the twenties and stuff like that, dude, you were glad you had all nine thousand right. BTUs of that thing. Right. You know? So, um, and then the other thing that was that was one of the most expensive things. So I think brand new, those are like I want to say like twelve or thirteen hundred dollars. I ended up finding it on wholesale for I think maybe like eight hundred, oh, if wow. I'm not mistaken, or like seven fifty. I found it. I got a deal on it, and then. Um, the the solar generator that I have is called a Blue Eddy, and it's a fifteen hundred watt hour solar generator, yep. which is a, a ton. And the reason why I went with a bigger generator, and I have two hundred eighty watts worth of solar power on the roof, and I use sun power panels because those seem to be the best and they last the longest. Um, they seem to last the longest, at least that's what I read in like all the reviews and how people are using them and stuff. And they're flexible; they're not they're not the real thick glass ones; they're 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 pliable ones. Mm-hmm. And I got that generator with that many watt hours because i podcast from there i can work from there i have a cell extender on it as well that as long as i have cell service i can use a hot spot and, and work and get on zoom calls for work if i need to from the trailer so i can extend hunting trips if i want yeah um so it was like i went overboard with those things and someone could get away with doing way way less if they're just going out the hunt and and being more primitive you wouldn't need nearly as much like i would still opt for the good heater but you can get you know, like a 500 watt hour solar generator for like 400 bucks yep. or whatever, you know what I mean? Cause that blue Eddie, I think is like 1500 bucks or something like that. I think it's what they are new. Yeah. But you, like you said, you needed something like that to, to be functional and everything, you know, work related podcast related. So you're, you know, not necessarily leaving the office. You mm-hmm. can still do your thing out there. That's good. Right. Filming hunts, charging camera batteries, sure. running laptops, like all that stuff, you know, we needed to be able to do on the trip. And so that was kind of the rationale behind, you know, the gear that I put into it from a power standpoint. Yeah. That's cool. Now I know you did some videos on this. So I, I would me selfishly want to get deeper into this, but I want to get into some other things, but kind of direct people to those videos real quick. Uh, are they on your YouTube channel? Yeah. You can just go to the truth from the stand YouTube channel. And there, I think there's like three in progress videos. You can kind of see how the build came along everything from, you know, when it started to how I installed certain things, how I installed the solar and the solar panels and, and, and stuff like that. And then there's one, that I did more recently that was kind of more of a wrap-up video um, where I just kind of talked about, you know, after living in it for a couple of weeks, what I would maybe change, what I'd maybe do differently, you know, things I'm thinking of doing for, for next year or maybe modifying for next year. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And I'm, man, I, I just want to do a whole podcast on that, but I might have to pick <laughs> your brain off podcast for that. So sorry, everybody yeah, out there sure. listening. For sure. <laughs> Yeah, but, I think the I think the most critical thing is just like to circle back on that one more time, not to sound like the White House press secretary with a circle back, <laughs> but uh, you know the um, the most important part of whenever you're figuring this out, especially if you're going to use a small piece, it's like is the bed and where you're going to put your power because you don't want cables and shit running everywhere. Right. And so like you, those are the two critical things to figure out. And like I'm short, I'm like five nine, the trailer's six foot wide internal walls with insulation and stuff like that makes it just a little shy of six foot. So I can lay sideways in the trailer, like fully, fully stretched out. 
So I put a bunk in it at, in the back, you know what I mean? On yep. just built out of two by fours and plywood on E tracks. And then underneath is storage. And then to, for my buddy, Chad Sylvester from, from Exodus to sleep. Cause he's usually the guy who's with me most of the time when we travel to hunt, I just put another set of E tracks up and actually got a hammock and I string it from one end to the other. Oh, and, it just, nice. and then that way it collapses back underneath my bed whenever, whenever, when we're up in the morning to get ready to go hunt. Yep. And so that's kind of how what the, we slept three people in Missouri. It was me, Chad and my buddy, Zach Shermer that did, was doing all the filming. Mm-hmm. And, um, Zach actually was staying in the hammock and Chad was just sleeping on a uh, pad next to the door. Okay. And so the three of us lived in that thing for seven days. So structurally like on mm-hmm. the walls with that hammock, did that affect anything at all? No, the way I, the way I set it up. So I put it on E-Tracks and I just, you know, the, you know, I don't know if people out there listening are familiar with what E-Tracks is, but it's essentially that slotted metal that is in the back of like a tractor trailer that yep. they use to put ratchet traps on and stuff. Right. And so there's basically like loops you can buy, like rings that click into those, you know what I mean? And so I bought those rings and then the carabiners just clip into those. And so whenever I was putting the E-Tracks in, you're not always on a stud necessarily. Um, but I tried to put at least two screws in a stud, you know what I mean? On the E-Tracks to mm-hmm. give it that, to give it that support. So, I mean, it'll conservatively hold 500 pounds okay. without, without yeah. failing. So, um, at least that's what the, uh, the hammock is rated for. And, you know, the, going into the, the, the wood studs, um, and pretty long, uh, screws as well. So it should be, it should be good. Right. I got you. That makes sense. Um, I just lost total train of thought here. Deep in deep in thought. Here. You're, dude, you're, you're, <laughs> contem- you're contemplating the. Uh, well, let me ask you this, man. What size is the trailer that that you're thinking of converting? It's the same size as yours. I'm pretty oh, sure really? it's. Okay. A, did you say yours was six by ten, right? Six by ten. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm pretty sure axle. it's the same size. Yeah. Nice. And nice. single axle, but I don't think mine. Yours has the door on the side. I don't think my dad's has the door on the side. Yeah, I think it's just got key. the two. I know it, and I'm I'm trying to think. That's where I was kind of losing. I'm like in La La Land now. I'm like, I think it's only got the two doors in the back. Yeah, but you can you can put a door in it. You know what I mean? Oh, like definitely. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like I was watching videos on you know how to put doors in. Dude, I watched videos on everything you could possibly think of how to convert <laughs> convert yeah. a trailer. You know, there's a ton but, of yeah. it out there too. Yeah, it is, man. And it's for good reason. I mean, it's a slick setup, you know, especially for, you know, guys that, you know, especially if you've got a couple buddies, like a couple buddies go in on something like that, that you all can use it. It's like, it's a great, it's a great tool for that kind of stuff. It, propane tanks on the front, a couple propane tanks, a toolbox on the front. You're good to go. That is cool. And hey, you could, if you don't have a camper, you could even take the family and just camp, go camp somewhere. Yeah. So it's funny you say that my wife refuses to go anywhere in it. So that's number one. Um, <laughs> But my daughter for her birthday, or not her birthday, I think it was for Christmas, I got her, she likes to horseback ride. She takes horseback riding lessons and stuff. And so she and I are going to this equestrian camp together uh, at the end of May, I think, um, to go do like some trail riding for like a weekend. And part of that was we're taking the the trailer to this lake and we're camping at this lake and then going to ride horses and stuff like that. So I'm at least taking her in it. That's sweet. That's cool. Yeah, I, I, you got me all giddy now. I got to do it. I got to do it. <laughs> yeah, dude, I expect some phone calls from you here in the not so distant future on some, uh, some trailer gear talk. I'm no, you'll probably get sick of me. I'll be calling you all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, man. Well, let's do a hard transition here. I want to get yeah, into for a little while. I want to be conscious of your time. Also, I know it's late at night here. Um, dude, I'm good. I, I'll go all night, man. Don't worry about it. Okay, I'm good. Okay, I can go all night too. So let's let's <laughs> let's get into this. So. 
you like to travel out of state. I guess first and foremost, first and foremost, why do you enjoy traveling out of state to hunt? Uh, initially, you know, I didn't really, it was just more the intrigue. I wanted to see something different, you know what I mean? Like that. And that was really when I started kind of, you know, falling in love with hunting public land. Cause I had a family farm still do, you know, we got close to, I don't even know what it is, like close to 400 acres back home between like maybe two or three different properties that the family owns between okay. my wife's family and, and my family. And I haven't hunted them in years. Um, and part of the reason was, is because I have to drive back to do it. And so I wanted to really kind of hunt public around me because I didn't want to have to drive back all the time. And I, and I ended up finding and getting on good deer around where I lived, but that was really the whole thing. It's like that, you know, whenever I was hunting the farm, I was limited to, you know, the deer that were on the property to a degree. And if there wasn't a deer that really tickled my fancy, it was kind of a bummer of a season to a degree. Yeah. Um, and there was one instance that was one particular deer was the best deer that we had really ever had on the farm from an age standpoint he was four and a half and i watched him for three years he was just like this big mainframe seven that was you know he was a seven point that was my buddy my buddy tate ended up killing that deer and it ended up scoring like 120 it was like 120 inch seven point which is a pretty big seven point that is a big seven yeah yeah and it was four years old and you know that part of pa gets slaughtered you know so it's you don't often get a deer that's four and a half years old in that area you know generally speaking and I had that deer kind of pegged. I had a bunch of encounters with him and I knew he was bedded on the neighbors. I just couldn't kill him. Like I had to wait for him to pass this one pinch point on the farm to pass. And I had my last encounter with him was the opening day of whatever, whatever year that was that season it was like October 1st opener. And I had an encounter with him at 20 yards and I just couldn't, he was behind some brush. I just couldn't get a shot. Uh. And so it was at that point where I was like, I want to start having experiences and encounters with the caliber of deer in the age structure age class of deer that i would like to have i'm going to need to start looking at going other places Mm -hmm. and so you know the first one was out to ohio you know the following year i went for i guess it was a week and i had some really great encounters with some you know seeing some killer rut activity and deer tearing up trees and you know just the whole thing you would see on like you think like a tv show almost like i saw that's kind of all kind of take place blew an opportunity on a really good buck on day five and then, and then killed a nice Pope and young deer on the, on the, on day six. And I kind of stumbled into that place by uh, truthfully getting lost. And it was just that like idea of like, I could just explore and go find deer was really kind of interesting to me. And that was when the bug kind of bit, you know, and then from there it's just become more of an obsession and my goal, you know, and I've mentioned it on my podcast. I think I mentioned it on the Exodus podcast, but my goal is to try to kill uh, a Pope and young whitetail in, in every state I can possibly travel to. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my goal. It's like a bucket list goal. You know, it's like, in, you know, not trying to kill the biggest, you know, that's not the, the goal necessarily. I just want to have great encounters and kill, you know, quality deer, you know, on, in every state I can possibly travel to. So if in my lifetime I get to 20, it's like, I'd like to kill 20 Pope and young whitetails in 20 different states. I love it, man. You know, whatever that number is. You know, and maybe I don't get there and that's fine, but it's just that like that seeking adventure, you know, and not knowing what's around the next around the next bend. And, you know, sometimes I get to go scout these places and sometimes I don't. Like sometimes it's just purely freelance hunting and sometimes it's places like the one area that I hunt, you know, in in, in the Midwest that I go back to year over year. It's a big woods piece that I have some history with and some intel on and some really great deer there. And I just you know, I, I won't stop hunting that place until I finally kill one of them. <laughs> so, yep. 
Yeah. I love but it. That's man. kind of, that's kind of the, that's kind of the gist of why, you know, the, why I started hunting out of state. It was that it was really just trying to new experiences. And I truth, I, I really feel like hunting new places um, and getting outside your comfort zone is how you expedite your learning curve of becoming a better hunter. 100%. Like, the thing it's done for me as far as like just seeing different terrain, different habitat, um, how, you know, thermals are going to work in different types of settings and stuff like that outside of like, you know, the farm that I knew and kind of could predict, you know, what winds were going to do and stuff like that. It really makes you think about things in a different way and um, certainly has helped me up my game. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, you can hunt the same piece of ground year after year, and you're going to probably stick to those spots that produce year after year or, you know, the better spots on the farm. Like, I got a perfect example. My family farm here in Michigan, 215 or 18 acres, I think it is. And I've, you know, my dad's hunted it since the 70s. And, you know, it's where I cut my teeth. And that's the thing. Like, there's there's probably 40 acres of that property that I've never touched before because we only mm-hmm. go, like, you typically stick to, like, the areas that have produced in the past. Mm-hmm. But last year, I really got into more mobile hunting, like, you know, mm-hmm. taking a, put a stand up, take it down, like, all that, like, and it, like, refueled a fire for me on that farm. Like, mm-hmm. the sky's the limit. And when I started going into spots that I've never been before, I learned so much and I'm going to say the, like the first five sits, I learned, Mm -hmm. you know, even more stuff about different types of terrain and you know, what, whatever it might be like different situations, you just learn so much and you hit the nail on the head. Like I couldn't agree more. Um, and that's what I'm trying to tell myself and then telling everybody listening to the podcast is like, get out of your shell a little bit and, you know, do things that you wouldn't normally do. Uh, Mm -hmm. and and just try it, get aggressive. And I think you might fail a lot, but you're going to learn while you're failing. That's how I learned the the best and the most is like failing. If that makes sense. A hundred, a hundred percent, man. And the other thing is too, is like, I'm pretty lucky. Like I said, like I I, I travel and hunt a fair amount with Chad and, you know, and have some good buddies that are, you know, um, who are really good hunters and, you know, in different States and that hunt public or whatever the case is. And, um, it's an interesting kind of tight knit group and we're all kind of there to help each other because we're all, you know, we're, our experiences aren't kind of just associated with like a piece of property that none of them are ever going to see, you know what I mean? Right. So, so for example, it's like this coming weekend, you know, my Greg Litzinger, the bow hunting fiend, like he's, he's coming into town and he and I are going to go scout together. Yep. You know what I mean? Cause there's a piece I haven't hit yet. I need to check out cause it's, I think I lost a deer there this year that, tr- that transitioned to, I mean, I think that's where he went. So we're going to go, we're going to go tear this clear cut apart together. Right. And it's doing that type of stuff that like, I just learn a ton from doing that type of stuff with, with different people and hunting with different people. So like going out and hunting with Chad and, and seeing how he hunts and learning how, how he reads topography and what he's looking for in habitat and stuff like that. Zach, dude, Zach was awesome. Whenever he was running the camera, like that was just, he was from Missouri, you know, while we were in Missouri hunting, like he was filming everything, but he was from Missouri, but not from a different part of Missouri. Mm-hmm. But it was just interesting to kind of get his perspective on like when we would be kind of break, like figuring out what our strategy was going to be for the day. You know, um, it was ultimately my call, right? Cause he was, you know, he's the camera guy. He would right. say that to me sometimes. He's like, I don't know, man, I'm just running the camera. You do what you want to yep. do, you know? But, uh, but I was really wanting to see what he, it was just good to be able to bounce stuff off him because he hunts, a little bit different. He has a little bit of different perspective. Um, and that's kind of the beauty of it, right? Cause it's just, it's, it's almost like a blank canvas and you just kind of go make of it what you will. Um, 
and you truly, I don't know, I feel like hunting private sometimes, and this isn't all the time. And look, look, I still like to go do some private hunts. I'm not poo-pooing it at all. You know, I'll go hunt with a buddy of mine if he's got access somewhere, you know, whatever the case is. But, you know, you really kind of have to let the hunt come to you to a degree on, on some of those places. And, I, and I'm not saying you don't be aggressive or you don't try to go find deer, but I feel like on private, at least this is my experience and this might be just me being an idiot, but I would force the issue sometimes like you almost want to will something to happen in a spot because you feel like it should. Yep. Whenever you don't know every nook and cranny of that piece necessarily, say you're traveling out of state, like again, Missouri, like went to three different places, knew nothing about any of them until I got there. I don't care where the action happens. I just want to be in the action. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so I don't have any preconceived idea of like, wouldn't it be cool if this this buck came down this ridge and did this here because that would be the perfect spot to shoot in? It's like, no, I'm just going, this is where the sign's at. It looks like garbage, but everything's telling me it's going to happen here. Yeah, dude. You know what I mean? Exactly. And this is actually one of the questions that I had for you. And it's 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 basically like when you're when you're going into a spot and you're finding sign and everything and you're like, okay, I need to be in here. How long, like, what's your process when you're trying to find the perfect tree to sit in? And I feel like that falls into this, this scenario right Mm -hmm. here, because I could sit on the ground looking in the trees for 20 to 25 minutes and picking apart every tree when really just get up the damn tree. You know what I mean? In a lot of scenarios, like how, how does your process work when you're at that point? Right. Yeah. I mean, it depends. Like Missouri was a little different because I had a camera guy with me, so it had to be able to accommodate two people, right? you know, that was, that was a little bit of a different thing for me. Cause that was the first time I've ever hunted with a camera person. So sometimes, you know, I'll get into a super small tree, but we needed more cover because there was two of them. There right. were going to be two of us, you know what I mean? So that was one consideration. It's like, I'm always kind of thinking about cover. The first thing I'm thinking about is like trying to figure out, you know, or understand based on the sign that I'm seeing and based on if like, depending on what the terrain is or what the habitat is like, you know, how are, how do I expect deer to come in here? like wherever I'm planning to be, right? Like if I'm going to hunt over a scrape or near a scrape, or if I'm going to hunt, you know, some type of pinch or, you know, I don't often hunt rub lines, but if I'm hunting a rub line or if I think I'm close to, you know, an area where a buck might be bedded or whatever the case is, you know, I'm trying to figure out, you know, time of day plays a role in this as well. And time of year, obviously, but I'm trying to think like, how is this deer that I'm going to try to kill? How is he going to come in here? Mm -hmm. Right. And why would he, why would he, why would he come in, in from that direction? Like what would be the logical reason for him, him to do that. Right. Yep. And then once I can, and that's sometimes, man, it's like, unless you've got trail camera Intel or data or something like that, or you, or you were sitting back maybe 60 yards from that spot and you, and you watched a deer move through and you're like, Oh shit, I'm 60 yards out. I need to move. I'm going to get down and move. And now I know how they're kind of moving, you know, outside of that, it's an educated guess, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And yep. It, and you really, you're thinking about, you know, and to make that educated guess, I'm thinking about, okay, based on what I know of the terrain, I'm looking at my map, this is the direction I would think he would come from based on where I think, what I think he's doing currently, right? Pending time of year, right? He, bedding, food, is it rut, whatever the case is. And then it's, what are, what are my, what is the wind and in, in, in thermals doing? Mm-hmm. And where, how is he going to have the advantage? Because I'm going to try to set up to give him the advantage, as much as I possibly can without screwing myself. And that's ultimately how I'm kind of making the decision. So it's like, I'm dropping milkweed, you know, looking at my prevailing, looking at what's going to happen throughout the day to try to predict. So I know what the wind's going to do throughout the day. So I know like, you know, I'm going to try to set up, pick the tree and set myself up 
to be able to have a kill opportunity when I think that deer is going to come through. So I'm not so worried about what the wind is doing whenever I'm there getting in. I'm worried about what the wind is going to be doing when that, when I plan for that deer to come through, Yep. you know what I mean? And so that's why I go back to like, you know, it's different answers for different times of year and different kind of scenarios because those all kind of play a role in how you're going to choose your tree. Like, so if it's a rut, you know, trip and you don't have anything that's going to funnel them specifically like hardcore in a specific direction, right? You just know it's a good pinch and it could come from any direction. A lot harder to figure out like how you're going to give him the wind. Right. You know what I mean? If he can come from any direction. Right. But you know, I'll give you an example. When I was in, in Iowa, when I killed that deer, I found a bunch of sign and I, I kind of tracked down where this deer was at over the course of however many days. It was the last day of the hunt. Long story short is I ended up missing the same deer twice, like in the, in the course of like four days and had like four different encounters with this one deer. Holy cow. Which is, yeah, it, like in completely different spots. So I kept catching him again because I kept finding his sign and like getting back on him. And then I bumped the deer out of his bed uh, and I tried to bump and dump, but he never came back. A younger buck came through. And so I went back the next day and I set up and what it was, there was a draw down to my like right hand side, right? And there was a trail that was kind of coming through the cedar thicket right from where these scrapes were at. And so that's where I, near where I bumped that buck from. And I was like, man, I was like, and there was a kind of a point behind me that like that dropped off. Right. And so I was like, man, I bet I can set up along this, along this draw. Cause all the deer activity I saw on that trip for bucks was after two 30, all of it. And so I was like, I'll hunt this in the evening and I probably won't see anything to like between probably two and dark. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was watching the weather and I knew that my weather, my wind was going to be shifting and was actually going to be almost a hundred percent wrong for me whenever I thought that deer was going to come through. But I would, if, if I got enough thermal pull into that draw as the thermals were dropping, as it gets on to evening, the sun starts coming down, it should buy me enough room to where if he comes through head on with the wind in his face, my scent should just be to the right of him enough to where I, when he recognizes I'm there, he should already have an arrow. In yep. Right. And I played that to a T and that's how he came through. And I ended up shooting him. That's and crazy. Killing him. Right. And so that setup was like, I had a little Intel cause I bumped the deer out of there. I actually, when I tried to bump and dump, a young deer came through and read the script, exactly what I thought a deer would do. So I knew how, he, how deer were probably going to filter through there. And I needed to set up with a barrier so he couldn't get downwind of me. Cause if he was trying to get downwind of me, he had to get into that draw and be hundred percent open. And he wasn't going to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, so I had the thermals in my favor, had the open kind of draw to my back in my favor that he couldn't get downwind of me without exposing himself. And so I knew he would stay up in the brush, which would give me like a 16 yard shot. And it did. That's crazy. That's cool. You know, so, yeah. So it's like, it's just trying to understand those things, but that was an instance where I had some Intel, but there's plenty of times when you don't, and you're really just making an educated guess best based on the terrain, the habitat, and what the wind is doing and your best assumption as to where that deer is going to come from. Yeah. So would you say best case scenario? I know it's very situational, very loaded question, but like when you're in a scenario, are you, do you, would you say you need to either know where this deer is somewhat betting or feeding or vice versa or both, you know, to, to try to make the best educated guess or best move? Yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, if you know any one of those things, like you're way better off, you know, it's, you right. know for, for, for obvious reasons. I mean, you know, I'm self-admittedly not the best best bed hunter necessarily. Um, you know, that's something that I'm kind, kind of always kind of, you know, working on. But, you know, I'll give you a for, a for example. Like, so this year, 
um, in October, there was a couple good deer that I had in this one piece that was in Pennsylvania that was, that was near me. Um, and I was, had a cell camera. I was kind of watching them and I kind of knew that they were in the area and, and they kind of moved off early season. I kind of assumed there was, there was a bachelor group of four, right. And one was a, a, a giant that I ended up glass in and ended up trying to hunt on the ground because I thought he was going to change or he was going to shift at the beginning of October. And so I, I ended up kicking him out of his bed and didn't get a shot opportunity. I mean, I never saw him again. There were three other really good deer that were kind of in the area. And I, you know, any three, any one of the three I was willing to kill. And one kind of showed up on a camera in, in daylight mid October. And I was like, okay. So he came in with about 30 minutes of daylight left. So what that told me was, I was like, he's close to bed. Like I'm close to his bed, you know, cause he's coming like he, like it, mature deer don't get up and kind of start moseying from their bed, you know, in the middle with daylight left. Right. Very often, right? Especially, especially the older ones. Like they're not going to start really. Have you ever heard people talk about the best time to kill a big deer is like that uh, Thanksgiving kind of time frame, right? The older deer kind of know how to play the game, right? The, mm-hmm. the, those, those first those that are going to come in stuff like they're not going to start to get the party started until later in October, beginning of November, most likely, right? So a lot of times when you see younger, you know, deer hitting scrapes or moving in daylight in mid October, it's often youngsters, right? When you see one that's got a little age on him and he's up and you maybe catch him on a camera, maybe catch a visual of him, you know, with 30 minutes left of daylight, pretty good bet that you're if close. you timestamp it, you're probably not far away. Yep. Right. You know, and so it, whatever it is, like you can backtrack a deer the same way. It's like you can, you know, he's hitting a camera in a staging area, you know, or you get a visual of him in a staging area, you know, right at dark. It's like, well, then think about, all right, well, he, pr- if he got here by five o'clock, right. Uh, how far away could he possibly be bedded? Where's the next best bedding opportunity? And knowing what direction he came from, what terrain features or topography was he using? And then you can start to figure out like, where's the next best bedding location? You don't have to find the exact bed. You just have to find what he's using to bed. And it might be an acre. It might be five acres or whatever it is, you know, but now you know where he, his core area is when he spent, where he's spending time. Right. And so this particular deer, I kind of knew where he was. I knew where he was, not exactly betting, but I knew what general kind of like, you know, three acre area that he was using as his kind of core area at that time of October. Mm-hmm. And so I went in to hunt him and, uh, it was on a Saturday, didn't see him and we can't hunt on Sundays in Pennsylvania. And he showed up there. Uh, well, he actually passed the camera that was on the way to where I was set up on Sunday with about 15 minutes of shooting light left. Which is ridiculous so, by the way, that you cannot hunt on Sundays yeah, in PA. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> exactly tell me about it man because this deer did this to me twice i hunted him on two different saturdays where i had the right wind um and he showed up on a sunday both times with like 30 minutes Jeez, of daylight like left 15 beats. 15 minutes of daylight left both times yeah so i missed him by a day and i would have been there on sunday because i had the same the exact same conditions both sundays that i would have been back in there to try to kill him this was all water access stuff so it's like you know stealth in stealth out they never know that i'm there Yep. Um, I shouldn't say they never know that I'm there. They always know you're there at some point, but you know, as clean as you can possibly be, I'm in and out of that place. So in that instant, you know, it's like, yeah, made it a lot easier for me to figure out where to set up. Cause man, I had Intel, you know, it's like, I could sure. see what direction he was coming from. You know, I could see what time he was hitting certain areas. And, and then, and so then at that point, like I knew I was close. So then it just becomes, well, how do I get myself in between me and the deer? Right. And yep. you can do the same thing, even if they're showing up on camera at dark, Again, you backtrack and figure out what's the next best betting. How long would it take him to get there? You know, what time would he be getting up to have to move? 
And then you just start backtracking, you know what I mean? And figure mm-hmm. out, okay, well, how far away do, do I think I can get or am I comfortable getting from where I think he's bedded to see if I can either kill him because I think I know what terrain or what topography or terrain features, you know, or edges of habitat he might be using to travel, you know, or at minimum, maybe you get close enough, you get a visual and you really start to learn what, see what he's actually doing. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that kind of goes to a point too. Like I was talking to your buddy, Chad Sylvester from Exodus. I did a podcast with him um, not too long ago and I was talking to him about how I've totally revamped how I use my trail cams and kind of go back (laughs) to your point on Intel. If you can get some Intel on some deer now, when I'm in Michigan here, I'll put my cameras out and I'll let them marinate literally all year um, mm-hmm. in areas that I want to, I want eyes on all year. So uh, one of the farms I hunt here in Michigan, I had, it's a big timber farm, um, literally a mile section of basically timber. I mean, there's a few ag fields in there, but it's big timber. So I put a camera in there, let it sit all year, hunting this this good deer early on well i pulled the camera after season and he was on this camera in the first week of october um in big timber in daylight mm-hmm. every picture was in daylight for like four or five days straight he was in daylight so i figured yes it is early october but he was a more mature deer i mean he mm-hmm. was not a slouch by any means i figured i was really close to where his where he was living um mm-hmm. it was right where a swamp meets uh, hardwoods and then tra- the hardwoods is the transition into like an overgrown like clear cut that had been clear cut a couple years ago now it's just like overgrown so right. I kind of like learned and there was a couple other deer on there too like bucks that were strictly daylight all daylight so I learned mm-hmm. a little bit about that spot and then this year I'm going to go in and take it a step further and put cameras in there but I'm going to hunt it now um, yeah. and it was just one of those things like I feel like mature bucks are going to use this area the same. I just got to be there to capitalize and use the topography and, like you said, the wind and everything to my advantage to really get in there and try to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, it's – man, you know, some guys don't don't like cameras and to, to each to each their own. Um, you know, I personally feel like if you have the time to be in the woods all the time, that, like, there's no substitute for that. Right. You know? But, you know, being completely honest, like I'm a working guy, like most everybody else. And so it's like, I need every, every advantage and every bit of Intel I can possibly get, you know what I mean? To help me for make sure. a plan for when I'm, for when I'm going to hunt, you know? And there's plenty of times when, you know, I'll go in and, you know, if I, if I don't have, I won't say if I don't have good Intel from like a camera, it, it's like, I'll still hunt places and that'll be, those will be days, you know, where I'm going in and I'm literally just going to put boots to the ground and try to go find sign, yep. you know? And a lot of times you know, that's in areas that I might not be as familiar with, you know, even locally, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like, I might not have hunted a place for a while. And so it's like, all right, I need to go in and figure out where deer are spending time. And a lot of times that's even just pressure related. Yep. You know what I mean? Cause PA like Michigan, man, there's a ton of pressure. And like what I've found, you know, and I actually kind of kicked this around with Zach Farrenbaugh at one point when we, when I had him on the show was we were talking about scrapes just, you know, in general and, you know, and, and using those to hunt and, and so forth. And, hot sign just in general. And, you know, what I've kind of noticed, and I think he kind of corroborated to a degree is like, you know, you get those first set of scrapes that are, that are opened up. And a lot of times, you know, you know, people will kind of rush to those. And I actually just talked to Nathan Keelan about this too. Um, and a lot of times, like, cause he doesn't hunt scrapes per se, right. He, he hunts like the to and from, from the scrapes. Cause truth be told, it's like, you know, most scrape activities at night, right. 
unless you have primary scrapes that are just like the central communication hubs, then you are in a different, a little bit of a a different situation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, big sign attracts people, right? If you live in a high pressure state, the chances are you're not the only person who saw that big sign. Exactly. (laughs) You know what I mean? So chances are someone's also hunting it, right? So if you're hunting it, you're probably not the only person hunting it, right? And so what I've started to find is like, where is the secondary, what I refer to as like the secondary scrape line, right? And the secondary rub lines or whatever, and just sticking on scrapes for now. Because what I've started to find is like, these, this first set will open up in October. And man, if they're opening it up in October, it's like, chances are they should stay like, get, you know, tended every so often, right? Like they should stay open for a little while. It shouldn't be like, I know during when you get like end of October and in, you know, in the mid, in the beginning of November, sometimes you know, some of the areas I hunt, it's like you will have a scrape and it will open for three days and that is it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. And it's like, and it's, and it's done. Right. But usually the ones that are opened up earlier in the year, it's like, those are kind of some general communication ones for, at least from my experience that like you, they may not get hit every day, but they're going to stay open for a little while right before they go, before they go cold. But what I found is a lot of these in some of the areas I hunt, it's like they'll open up in, you know, mid October and be in like, be off in like a week and like done mm-hmm. closed up, you know, you know, not opened any longer. And then what I found is like, if I push back in further, I start picking up that sign again. Like the deer all like moved off that first line of that first set of sign, the first set of like bigger sign that they laid down and they've moved off to like the deeper timber to get away from the pressure. And then they start laying down, you know, their quote unquote kind of like pre rut and rut activity or whatever. And so, you know, that's one of the things I kind of think of whenever I'm, you know, trying to think about, you know, going back to like setups or whatever, you know, and if I'm trying to figure out what a deer is doing, it's like, he might be doing this now, but like, what is, what is he going to be doing later? It not only as the season evolves, his food changes, his biology changes, and then, you know, inevitably people change his behavior. Right. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And you know, I don't know why, and there might be other people out there thinking that too, but like that, you you walk into a sign and a lot, I mean, majority of your hunters, I would think on public or private land, are going to run into a couple, you know, big rubs or a couple scrapes and they're going to be like, oh, you know, get that like, mm-hmm. feel like I need to be right here. You know, I've done it, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody's done it. I like that secondary thinking of like, Okay, so back up a step, take a take a second, figure out, you know, what else is around here and maybe you could hell, you could go 60 yards down, you know, a little further and and then that might be your secondary spot and that's 60 yards could make, you know, 15 minutes of a deer's movement like to go back mm-hmm. to like what you said with mature deer, they don't just get out of their bed and start running around, you know, unless yep. it's the rut. I mean, he's going to shake he's gonna stretch he's gonna he's gonna sit around for a while you know in yep. that area he's not gonna move much um yeah they're, well, they're just smart. think about when you when when you wake up man if you're a three you know just say you're in your 30s right you're a three-year-old deer yep you know and we're not even talking like four or five year olds or whatever it's like you're in your 30s it's like man when your alarm clock goes off in the morning you're like you just spring out of bed and be like hell yeah let's do this no, it's like you, Hit you wake snooze up you, four times, <laughs> right? You rub your eyes, you stretch, you're like, damn it, man, it's time to get up already. Yep. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, I got to scratch and go go take a leak. You know what I mean? It's like, it's the same thing. Yep. You know what I mean? It's like, that's, you know, so they're not really, you know, I won't say that they're no different, but it's like, you know, yeah, it's like, they're going to kind of mosey, mosey about, yep. you know, especially the older they get, the more they mosey, you know, yeah. just like we, <laughs> just like we do as men, you know, it's like, 
the older the, the older I get, the nosier I get. You know? Scratch yourself. Go take a leak. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, man. The difference yeah, in so. deer, they can take a leak and raid outside their bed if they want. <laughs> yeah, I've done, I, I, I might have done that after a couple <laughs> beverages one time. The wife wasn't real. Ruined, ruined uh, might have ruined a good pair of her socks, shall we say. <laughs> funny secondary story real quick. Uh, yeah. In college, my college roommate, he every night that he would just get absolutely, you know, had too many barley pops basically Mm -hmm. he would come home and he would pee in his hamper he -hmm. would just take a leak in his hamper and i mean it happened numerous times numerous times (laughs) why not you're gonna wash that stuff anyway so it's all good (laughs) exactly that is funny oh my gosh so kind of going a little further you're obviously we know you're a big public land guy so and you travel so when you're traveling (laughs) like how are you figuring out where to go to hunt like what types of things are are, you know steps are you taking to figure out okay Mm -hmm. this is this is an area i really need to pursue and this is what i'm gonna do this fall right yeah i mean first it kind of goes you know for me at least you know i'm thinking about what other what states have i been to and like just what places do i have an interest in seeing you know what i mean like i want to see a bunch of places so like this year i'm going to kansas you know, and so I'll also start buying points in advance. So I'll have like a, I typically have like a rolling five-year plan. So I kind of know like what the next five states are going to be, you know, and like, and I'll kind of plan those things out. And for those, some of those states, like I need to, I'll be buying points for them, mm-hmm. you know, yep. namely Kansas. Kansas is pretty easy to draw. So I got one just for insurance. So I knew I'd basically have a hundred percent chance to draw this year. Iowa, I buy points every year for Iowa. So every four to five years I can go back to Iowa. So that's one thing, just, you know, start planning to have the the points that you need. And then from there, it's like, you know, what type of hunt do I want to have? Like this year, I'm really stoked and looking forward to going to Kansas because it's going to be a lot of ground hunting, you yep. know, because the area that we're targeting to go to, it's like, there's not a lot of trees doing that on purpose because most bow hunters that travel from the East, right. Cause the East is most popular, you know, most populated, most densely populated are going to want trees. Mm-hmm. You know, they're classic stand hunters or, you know, even if they're using a saddle or whatever, just a lot of guys aren't comfortable hunting from the ground, you know what I mean? With a bow in their hand, right. Yep. Just because of how close you have to get gun, a lot different, right. But bow, you know, close encounter, you got to be able to get close. And so, you know, that was the other thing I was looking for. I was like, let's do, go somewhere where we can, you know, ground hunt. And then once I kind of figure that out and kind of like narrow down the state, then it becomes like the normal things you would start to think about in terms of like pressure and access and like what type of habitat does it have? You know, is there always looking for places that have diversity of habitat? You know, I've, I, I really never want to go to a place that's like, you know, where the habitat's just homogenous, right? Like, I don't want to just see like all hardwood or all swamp or all CRP or whatever. It's like, I want some changes. I want some edges if I can get them. I just want, want diversity. Right. Um, and so I'll kind of look, you know, look, look for those types of things, you know, maybe contact a wildlife biologist, you know, for the area or DNR rep, you know, whatever the case is to try to get a little Intel, you know, do a little, little searching to figure out where, what areas might have the type of deer you want to hunt or the caliber that you're looking for or, the experience that you want that you want to have, um, man. I use my my personal network like crazy. You know what I mean? Like the one benefit from having a podcast. I've met hunters from all over the place that have hunted all over the place. For sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. it's like I probably know someone who has hunted close to where I'm going to be. I don't know how many times. There's one guy in particular, uh, Brian Broderick, that owns Day Six uh, Gears, Day yep. Six Arrows. Um, 
like I was going to Missouri and I was like talking about this place I was going to go. And he's like, Oh, you're going to this place. And I was like, yeah. Like, how do you know? He's like, yeah. He's like, I hunted over here. You know, it's like, so, you know, you just you start to think about like, well, who do I know who may have hunted like some of these places or have a friend who lives there or a cousin that I could maybe get some info from or whatever. And that's really truthfully how I start to start to put it together. And then it's, then you get into like the classic kind of like what you do once you start to kind of like narrow some things down, you start doing your scouring of your maps and you know, what does the map look like? What does the topography look like? What does the access look like? You know, can I get into somewhere that I have to use a boat? You know, because mm-hmm. that's going to cut, like, you're going to have way less bullshit factor with pressure if, if you have to access it by boat. You know what I mean? Yep. So start looking at stuff like that that are just going to be barriers to people, you know, getting getting up in your business, you know? Mm-hmm. And and that's really kind of the, the, the approach I take. It's not super scientific. Um, you know, I probably labor over it more than I need to. And then the other part of it too is, is just think about like, are you a person who's comfortable freelance hunting or do you, is it, or does it need to be close enough for you to be able to get to, to do a couple scouting sessions to feel good about going? Right. You know, that's the other part. Like for me, it's like, I'm a like, screw it. Let's go do it type of type of person yeah. where it's like, I don't need to see it before I get there. It's like, I'll figure it out when I get there. Yep. You know? Um, but some people don't like that. You know, look, if I have my, if I have my choice, it's like, I like to go scout. So I kind of have an idea of what I'm walking into if I sure. can. Yeah. But you know, I'm fine going in and, and not, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll figure it out. And sometimes that's part of what I want from the hunt too. It's like, man, part of this thing is just also seeing what you can do, like what you're capable of, you know, like that one for me was like, that was what I loved about that trip in Missouri. It was like, never had set foot there and I'm just going to go figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know, and can I, can I do it or can I, it was the same thing in Iowa. I went and scouted it, but the area, the place that I scouted, I hunted for three days of like that 16 days. And then after that, I went to a different place I'd never been before and just figured it out. Really? You know? And so, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, there's something about that. Like there's something about that type of hunting. that's just freeing, you know, that you don't have any preconceived notion of what's going to happen and you're not, you're making decisions on instinct and gut and you know it it forces you to not overanalyze things and just make a decision right and like you know when you see hot sign you hunt hot sign yeah you know what i mean like right and not and not second guess and be like well what's over this ridge like there's plenty of times where i did that and i would kind of circle back and maybe hunt that sign that i originally found but you know most of the time on those trips man it's like when i found sign and, and like my spidey senses went off it was like i got in i got either got into a tree or there were a couple setups in Missouri where it's like we just set up behind like a down tree on the ground and had an encounter. Yeah. Are you, do you typically tend to get married to a spot or a, a, a piece of public, you know, uh, if you get there or is it like for three days and you don't hardly see anything, are you bailing? I'm bailing dude. I don't get emotionally attached okay. to, mu- to much of anything. Now yep. I can't say that's true for Pennsylvania. I do. Um, it's funny cause my buddy Litzinger makes fun of me for it a little bit we were talking about it one day on a podcast and he was like, he was like, man, he was, he was like, you, you actually hunt better and more free in in places that you don't have any information on. Mm-hmm. He's like, I think you get in your head too much and you're trying to, and that's what I was saying earlier, where it's like in some places that you have history with, you try to force something to happen in a place that you want to happen so bad. Cause that's where, sh- that's where your mind is telling you it should happen versus letting the hunt come to you and the woods tell you where it's going to happen. Yeah. 
And I have a hard time doing that in places that I have a lot of either history with or that I have Intel on or whatever. And so I'm a guy that's like, I'm probably better with like just enough information to get me excited, but not enough for me to like really make a plan. I if that you. makes sense. No, it does. Totally. You know? Yeah. Greg, he's, I've had him on a couple times on my podcast. He's, he's good shit. He does. Yeah. He's man. good, man. Yeah. He's, he's really I'm, I'm lucky to call him a good friend and I'm, you know, you know, that I get to spend as much time with him as I do. Um, you know, cause he's, he's one guy that, you know, like I said earlier, you know, you, you pick, you pick stuff up from the, the people that you get to spend some time with, you know, out in these, you know, different you know pieces of public or whatever the case is and spend time scouting with them or picking their brain or whatever. And, you know, I'm definitely fortunate to call him, him, my, you know, my, my buddy and, you know, my, some, to some degree, a little bit of my hunting sensei, if you will, you know yep, what I mean? Like, yep. cause you know, cause he's local and we hunt very similar type of stuff, you know what I mean? Like around us, cause he's in Jersey, I'm North of Philadelphia. So we're not far from each other. And, you know, we talk a lot during hunting season and bounce stuff off of each other and look at maps and I'll send him pins so he can look at something for me and just get his opinion. And so, you know, that's really what it's all about, man. It's that community, the brotherhood and trying to help each other get better. And when you can find some guys like that, man, keep them close and don't let them go. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with that for sure. Um, so you're, you're typically not getting married to a spot then. Now, when you're getting to a, you know, particular piece, it can be very intimidating, you know, how big pieces can be or just never being there and not knowing a lot about it. How do you deal with that intimidation factor? Um, yeah, I'd be lying if I said it, that I don't get intimidated because I just think it's natural and it's not so much like it's not scared. It's more of like a WTF. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean, like, it's like, what am I going to do? You know what I mean? Like, there's so much here, right? And it's the it's the fear of missing out, really, is what it comes down to, right? Because there's so many places that you look at on a map that could be good that you're just not quite sure where to start, right? And that's normal. And you know, there's some things that you can do depending on what the terrain looks like and stuff like that, right? It's like you know, pick an area that looks like again going back to like what I was saying. If I'm going out of state or whatever, it's like you start marking stuff off, right? Like why, like certain areas that you wouldn't go check out, like too close to a road, which sometimes are the best spots if they're overlooked. Right. Yep. But you know, easy access, right. Um, you know, too close to, a, to a road, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, the criteria is that you're using to kind of like whittle, whittle out spots. You go through that and you just mark off the stuff that you don't want to, that you don't want to see. And then you start looking at the places like, okay, here's a place that has a bunch of diversity. Here's a place that has a bunch of topography. Here's a place that has a bunch of like whatever. Right. And then you start to kind of mark what those places are, and you take that chunk from being, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing this now in a piece in Northern PA in a piece of big woods. You know, when I say big woods, it's not like the Adirondacks or, you know, something like that. That's millions of acres or whatever the case is. But, you know, that this particular piece is over a hundred thousand pushing, you know, probably like 140, 150,000 acres. And then there's other adjacent pieces that are around it. So it's just in that general area that you could drive to. There's probably a couple hundred thousand acres that you could, that you could be hunting. Right. And, you know, and so I'm kind of going through that now and I'd never been there before. And I'm talking now just about scouting it. Like if I were hunting it, it's, it's a little, it's a little bit different, but some, somewhat the same, you know, I'm basically taking the Johnny Stewart method method. And I, and I learned this from Johnny and it made a lot of sense because he hunts, you know, out in the Alleghenies and that's huge country out there in Western PA. And what he's basically done is he was like, what I do, you know, is I take like a five mile area for example, right? Or whatever size. I'm just using that as a number. Maybe it's like a, 
a three square mile area or something like that. And he's just like, I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to learn that. I'm going to learn how to hunt it. I'm going to learn what all opportunity is there. Right. And once I feel like I've sufficiently learned that you could probably spend years learning that. Right. You know what I mean? And, and not know all of it. And then you just kind of go find the best stuff that's in that area. I mean, there's some things you can do like on your map scouting and stuff like that to try to narrow it down. Cause you just don't want to go in blind. It's like, for me personally, it's like, I'm looking for clear cuts, right? It's going to give me edge. It's going to give me diversity of habitat and typically going to give me good food and good cover, right? Depending on the age of the clear cut. So that's a lot of time what I'm going to focus on, right? Because if you know nothing else, follow the edge. You're going to likely lay down sign on the edge of that clear cut somewhere where it meets the hardwood or where it meets a swamp or whatever the case is, right? And so that's really how I start to break stuff down is I start to find things that I'm familiar with, right? Like where, what is something that, that, that I understand and, and start from there. I don't start from a position of like failure and being behind the eight ball. I go, okay, what is something here where I could start to find success and find sign, right? That Mm -hmm. I have a level of like comfort in my skills and then go from there. And then once I start to kind of learn more about the piece and kind of understand like what the deer are doing a little bit, now I kind of get and can go like, okay, well, how does this apply to some of these other areas in this piece? And just start to methodically kind of break it down. The other thing is like, I'm a firm believer in these big pieces, man. Like, you know, a lot of these big woods chunks depends on, you know, how, how they're managed, but the piece that I'm in, like the clear cuts are few and far between and it's pretty, pretty vast. And, you know, it's in the Pocono mountains. So, but it's not necessarily a lot of topography change because you're really kind of up on top of the mountain. Right. Right. And so you're not dealing with like ridge systems and, and stuff like that. And so it's a lot of flats. So it's a lot of swamp on a mountain setting, right. Without a lot of structure. And so the deer can kind of move almost anywhere. And so what I'm learning about this piece is that they really kind of exist in pockets. And like, if you're not in a pocket, you're probably not going to see shit. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you got to be in, so it's finding those little pockets and like understanding how they're like, I found a buck bed in the most random place you would find a buck bed on this piece. It was in the wide open timber, but it was on like, it was on a contour line on a map that you would assume that that would be a good travel route. And I've, and I've picked up a rub and I followed this rub line and like, boom, buck bed. And it was off the edge of a clear cut, like a fair distance, probably 30 yards, but it was in the middle of like a heart, like completely open hardwoods. What do you think he was doing there? And there was hair in it and it was worn to the dirt. So I know it's used pretty often. I can't say for sure whether he's like bedded there, you know, all, all October or November right, or, right. or whatever. My best guess is, is like there's an oak flat that's not far away. So he's got food that's pretty close. The position that he was laying in, in that bed, he was looking down off this little like slopes. So this is, it was like, it wasn't, it wasn't classic three quarters of the way up the ridge. It wasn't even so much a ridge. I wouldn't call it, but, um, there was a clear cut behind him. So I'm assuming there's probably does bedded in there. Right. And then he's bedded kind of 30, 40 yards off the edge of it. The, the, the prevailing wind was going to be coming was in that area Southwest, which would be coming over his back from that clear cut and the way his rub line came, the way he was positioned, he was watching his back trail and he was also watching everything out in front of him because it's wide open. Mm-hmm. And so in that particular, and he's got an oak flat that wasn't too far away. So in that position, he's got food, he's got cover, he's got the wind advantage, and he's got his bitches oh. <laughs> during <laughs> when it gets to when it gets to rut. If he's still kind of sticking around that area, which I would imagine, like you know, that would be part of his range during rut, based on the sign that I saw. Yeah, you know, but the signs very spread out and very um, not super concentrated. 
And so that's the part that I'm trying to interpret now, because like typically, you know, you get into certain areas that have a lot of structure. Your mind goes like you see a scrape, like, okay, cool. But I don't care until I see like a primary scrape and just like, like hammer scrapes laid down or hammer, hammer rubs. Right. And this just isn't having that. Like I'm finding like rubs that are, you know, a little above my stomach high and on like an okay size tree, but like typically wouldn't get excited about it. But to give you an example, the one area I hunt, you know, in a a state in the Midwest, you know, that I hunt pretty consistently, super low deer density, but this past year had probably four Boone and Crockett deer on camera. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And the biggest rub I found was on something that was about the size of my wrist. You know what I mean? So it, it, so Big deer don't necessarily always equal big rubs. And this is something I'm still trying to learn, you know, from like, I'm saying big tree or big diameter tree. Like usually if they're, maybe you get one that's tall and you can start to tell like based on like the length of it or whatever. But, you know, one of the things that I'm learning is a lot of times these big wood settings where these deer, where their ranges aren't necessarily overlapping either because of low deer density, which in the place in the Midwest, that's kind of the issue. It's low deer density. Or in a place like where I'm at in PA, which PA typically has really good like has good deer numbers as far as like density goes, but they might just be so spread out because the habitat is really only conducive in certain pockets for them to, to live long, to live long term. So these bucks core areas and ranges may not be overlapping to create that, um, competition to lay down that, to lay down that sign. Yeah. Why leave bitches if you got bitches, you know, (laughs) that's just, that's just it. You know what I mean? And so, so that's what I'm trying to figure out now. That's just a hypothesis. But that to me is like part of the fun. It's like right. you make up the scenario in your head of like what you think is happening. And then just like the scientific method, you go and you either prove it or disprove it. Either way, it's valuable. Yeah. You know, it's like there's no value. Like there's just as much value in me being wrong as there is in me being right. And that's kind of like how you get over the intimidation factor. I. It's not about being right. It's about learning it and progressing it. Yep. Yeah. I, so I got a scenario for you. When you brought up how this mountain, you're up basically on top top of these hills, these mountains, and but it's flat. So mm-hmm. give give this scenario here. Let's say you got a flat setting, but you've got diversity. Mm-hmm. You got edge. You've got swamp. Mm-hmm. You got hardwoods. Um, and then you have a rolling hill area. Are you typically thinking it's easier to figure out a flatter scenario like that with more diversity and more edge than it is like a rolling hill kind of, you know, topography changes a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for bedding or if you're looking for just a travel route, you know, I, I would think maybe just a little bit differently, but typically, you know, I'm going to go where the cover is. Yeah. And so if, if that rolling hill has cover, you know, I would probably go check that because I would think like, hmm, those might take that low lying area, especially if it might be a little bit more, you know, easier, more easily accessed, yeah. you know, to a degree if there's easier access there. And I would think, you know, bucks might be bedded up on this to maybe get a little bit more of a thermal advantage, you know, on a prevailing wind, depending on what the prevailing wind is in, in that area. You know, so that's what I would kind of be thinking of is like, where is the best, where's the best cover at, mm-hmm. you know, and if it's in the swamp, then great. If it's an area that might get a lot of like hunting pressure, you know, and it's mid season. Yeah. I might be looking at the swamp cause it's likely that they probably have got driven out of the areas that they were comfortable in prior to the pressure picking up, which might've been on that rolling hill or whatever the case is. Right. And so, you know, it, it just really depends. Like I don't find one or the other easier necessarily. Um, 
you know, I think is I think the flat to me, in my personal opinion, is harder for me unless I have significant diversity of habitat. Yep. Right. Whenever I get into like some of this homogenous stuff that just like where there's no like edges and stuff like that, like it's hard. You know, it, it's it's challenging. There's not a lot of structure. The deer can move anywhere. Trails aren't concentrated. Right. And so you're really looking for like minuscule, minuscule sign. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, you know, I would probably, me personally, I would probably concentrate on like on the swamp just because it would have the best cover, especially if it were rut, definitely on, definitely on the swamp. Mm -hmm. If it were maybe earlier October to mid October, I would maybe give a flyer to that rolling hill again, depending on what the cover looked like on that and what the prevailing wind would be and what the bedding opportunities would be on that. Then I'd maybe give that a flyer. Um, But I think you also have to think about your access with some of that too. It's like what, can you get up, can you get to that rolling hill without getting busted? Right. Right. Or yeah. do you have, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, right. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's like, well, what's that deer going to do? Yeah. Do you think he's bedded there? Right. If he is, you know, how far are you willing to push in? Can you get to where you need to be to get an opportunity in daylight? You know, all those things kind of start to, you know, start to play, to start to play a factor. Yeah. And I'm not sure. Does it, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. It does. I, I was just curious, like in your opinion, like I was, you know, trying to get more like, where are you getting, what's, what's sucking you in more? Are you more of like the flatland guy with a little bit more diversity or a rolling hill guy? Mm-hmm. But you, you, you nailed it. I mean, with what you're saying, like you're looking for cover. So you're going swamp. If you can get a swamp, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I'll take cover on a, on a, if I can get cover on a ridge, something like that, like the, just a real brushy, like not necessarily the top of it, but like the side of it, Sure, you know, where the, where the elevation is or where the elevation changes yeah. are or like a really gnarly ridge that's kind of steep with, that has like the small, not even like the smallest, but there's like a bench that kind of flattens out, you know, like part way down that just like, like provides a secondary a little, ridge kind of. Yeah. Like just, or just like a significant bench. Like I found that in like, you know, the big woods of like, you know, almost like a, uh, let me give you an example. So the area that I was just in in PA, I was looking at the map and I was like, all right, we're coming off this ridge. It's kind of a slow slope down, but they're like, as you get off the point of that ridge, there's one area that kind of flattens out before it drops off into like this, this, uh, creek bottom. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, some of the other places I've hunted in the big woods, that's always been like a classic place to congregate deer, deer sign. Cause like they like to make sign on like lay down scrapes and flat areas. Right. And so whenever you're in areas that are sloping and stuff like that, you maybe don't quite find as many, and in that area just looked like it was kind of brushy. So it was like the best of both worlds, right? It's coming off this, this, this ridge, you know, it kind of provides this little like bench area off this point or whatever. And it just seems like that would be a place where deer would congregate. Yep. And sure enough, went there and, and found scrapes and I didn't find a lot of scrapes in, in, in this particular piece. And so, you know, so I'll look for like little things like that, just like little anomalies that kind of occur in the, in the terrain. If I'm thinking of, of hill country or more specifically, you know, a couple of different terrain features that kind of tie in like multiple ridge systems sure, or whatever, yep. you know what I mean? Like those types of things are dynamite just because those are areas that are just kind of like they're, they're, they're highways, right? They're, they're like pulling. It's like, it's like the roundabout for like five different roads. Yeah, definitely. No, it <laughs> you, really is. You know what I mean? And so it, it's those types of things when you can get them, you know what I mean? When they start to connect multiple, you know, ridge systems together or whatever through like these bench, like a particular bench, it kind of winds around, you know, and connects like three different ridge systems, like through a saddle. It's like, boom, like you probably got a pretty good idea how deer are going to use that general area. So I would probably 
I'd probably be following that and checking that out. Yep. That, you know? makes, that makes total sense. Yeah. So are you, are you more of like a passive or aggressive kind of hunter? Mm, different at different times. Um, and I know that's like the shittiest answer ever from one pod. <laughs> not a cool, to like, not a cool answer. <laughs> yeah, I know from one podcast host to the net to another, it's like, you always hate getting it like, well, it's both. Um, yeah. but no, I, I really think it's depending on where you're, where you're hunting. And this is something I've had to kind of, I guess I, I've learned somewhat the hard way. Um, you know, I think earlier, you know, or several years ago, I, I teetered back and forth between being, you know, overall more passive or patient, you know, to then, teetering the complete opposite way and being way more aggressive all the time. And what I learned is, is that you really have to kind of take into consideration where you're hunting and what the hunt calls for. So for example, if I'm somewhere where I have a lot of structure, you know, just, just say like around Pennsylvania or let's just say Missouri, for example, a um, lot of structure pieces were relative, like decent size. Like the one piece was like 1700 acres. One piece was about, I think close to 7,000. And the other piece was like, I don't want to say like 4,000 or something like that acres. Um, I was pretty aggressive on those hunts because I was freelancing them, you know, and I had a limited amount of time to get something done. and didn't know anything about the places. So I had to just go kick up deer to find deer. It's kind of how I put it. Right. It's like on these out-of-state hunts, it's like I'm willing to go basically move deer in order to know where they're spending time. Right. You know, I'm willing to kind of give that part of the the of the surprise factor up just to know where they're at, right? And then make a and then make a plan from there. Now, which is great, and I sometimes do that in Pennsylvania, but in PA, I'm probably a little bit more patient because I have a little bit more intel. So I try to make a little bit more of a plan and try not to blow up the spots where I think I'm going to have an opportunity where I could have an opportunity based on sign and based on in-season scouting. Like that's the one thing, man, that like I just don't think people do enough of is they do a lot of scouting in the postseason. It's like I would, if I could only scout one time, I would scout in season. Like I wouldn't, if, if someone told me you could, you could either postseason scout or you can in-season scout, I would say I will see you in September. You're kind of going against the grain there a little bit too from what a lot of people would say. You know, yeah, not, not that not that in-season scouting is bad, but I would feel like a majority of people would say, Give me that, like right after the thaw, you know, or the or the mm-hmm. winter, the late season. I want to see all that sign that was just laid a couple months ago. Yeah, and what I would say was, you don't know when to show up, right, in October or November because you yep. don't know when that sign was made, right? Sure. And and then and they're both critical parts of the puzzle, right? If you can have both, you know, that's great. Like because what you should be doing is your your postseason scouting should be your data gathering, right? And I'm thinking in like marketing terms, yep, like research, yep. research, right? That's your research, right? What you're doing in October and November or September, depending on when your season opens, right, is data validation. So now you're validating when that sign is actually being placed where you found it in the off in, in postseason, mm-hmm. right? That tells you now when to hunt it. Because if you come across a scrape in February, was it laid down October 15th? Right. Was it laid down November 3rd? Was it laid down October 15th, but then not open back up till the 28th? Mm-hmm. Like you, you, you don't know, you know what I mean? And so that's why for me, it's like I started having better encounters and just more encounters in general when I started being cool with in-season scouting and knowing that like I might have to move some, like, look, if I have a deer in an area and, I, and I've hunted an area for a couple of years and I kind of have an idea, 
yeah, I don't need to go back in until I know it's time time to kill something or try to kill something, right? But if I'm in an area and like I'm not seeing what I think I should be seeing, I need to go figure out why that is. You know, and so then that's yep. when your in-season scouting becomes critical. You know, and so, you know, I and so to go back to answer your question, areas that I'm patient in would be like, you know, a big wood setting. You know, I you know, that is one area where I will scout in the postseason, try to figure some things out, do some in-season scouting to val to do some quick validation. But if you have hot sign, you might need to sit it for a couple of days because you don't know when that buck might come back to tend that sign. Right. He could have a three day loop, could have a seven day loop. You, you don't know. Depends on how far he's traveling. You know what I mean? So sitting it just the day, and I think in the big woods, especially if your access is good, I feel like you can get away with a little bit more sit hunting the same spot for a couple of days. Yeah. Versus, you know, maybe a smaller parcel or or whatever the case is. Because there's days where I'm hunting, I'm not seeing deer at all. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yep. in, in some of those settings, right? And I've hunted plenty of those where it's like, you know, this year is a good example. I had a Boone and Crockett that I knew like to hit this one scrape that historically opens. And he ten- he hits it in daylight during like a three-day window in October for the past three years. Right? Pretty good intel, right? Year-over-year data. He's done it consistently. Mm-hmm. I sat those three days at that spot, never saw him. Now, I jumped a big deer on my way out the third day because I was changing spots. I was getting a little bit more aggressive, right? I was like, I'm going to move. I'm going to go find some sun. I'm going to set up and hunt. Did that, and on my way out, I I kicked a very large deer out of a bed. <laughs> you know, and didn't see what it was, but I heard grunting. So the way the punt played out was I got in in the morning. I got into the tree. It was foggy. I started hearing a doe blow, and, I, and my wind was falling back over this um, draw that was behind me. So I knew she didn't smell me, and she sure as shit couldn't see me. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd been in my tree for 10 minutes, so she certainly didn't hear me, you know? So I'm like, what the hell is making that deer blow? And so I was just trying to figure out what was going on. And all of a sudden I heard just like the, a super deep grunt, just like, Bruh. and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And so I, my immediately immediate thought was, I'm like, this thing's like a mile back in too. And right. I'm like, you gotta be, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. There's a guy set up and blowing on an extinguisher, like 200 <laughs> yards from me. I'm like, get the F out of here. You know what I mean? Like that was my initial thought. Cause I'm from Pennsylvania. Right. So I hear yeah. any type oh, of yeah. deer sound in the woods. I'm like, that has to be a person. <laughs> yeah. Well then what happened was like that grunt moved about a hundred yards down the ridge. And then I was like, Oh shit, that she's blown because I think a buck is, is bumping her. Right. Yep. And so I grunted back and I might even touch the rattling antlers together. I don't quite remember. Um, and then she took off. And then he grunted a couple more times. And I could hear, I, I could hear the grunt move across the ridge. Now the, he was through this draw, like up on this ridge, like across from me. So he was probably like a good, I don't know, maybe 150 yards away, 200 yards yep. away, something like that. And uh, and so I assumed he chased her, right? Like because I didn't hear him anymore. Like after that, like, she blew out. He grunted a couple more times. Grunt sounded further away. And so I assumed like, well, he's gone after her. And so I sat for a while till probably like, I don't know, 1030 or something like that. And I wanted to get down to try to get to another spot to try to catch the like, you know, early afternoon cruise or you know, action. Yeah. And uh, got down and was walking out. And when I walked up, like to walk out this two track, that deer was bedded along that two track oh. and jumped up and blew out. And I never saw what it was, but it was a solo deer, you know, bedded by himself. Um, and was from the sounds of him hitting 
the ground. Like it was no doubt it was a, a large bodied animal. So, and it was right from where the grunts were coming from. So, I mean, it had, it, it had to have been him was my thought. So do you think he just kind of worked that ridge and just kind of like bedded up for the day? Yeah, that's, that's, that's what my kind of thought is, but just, you know, it, it just kind of, I guess the point there is, is that, you know, that was an instance where I had to sit the same spot day over day. And if I sat there all day, maybe, maybe I got a shot at him. Right. You know what I mean? Maybe he comes down to 10 that scrape, you know what I mean? Cause that was in that, in the window of time that he would have, you know, been, been cruising through, Yeah, you know, um, and never in a million years would I have thought to be up there because we had a camera running up there and I checked a, a camera in that area and there was one good buck that came through there and it wasn't him. And so there wasn't a lot of activity up there in general. And I've postseason scouted that in the past and I've not found, found really any deer sign up there either. You know, so it was just kind of curious that that's where he, he was at, but not far up that two track. I had a camera on a scrape that used to be along that two track, um, this is an area of the hunt with Chad's. They're all, you know, truthfully, they're all Chad's cameras. Like he puts, <laughs> you know, um, do you make but, him uh, bring all the cameras when you go on trips with him? No, the funny story <laughs> about that is, is like, he will not let, let me hang my own camera anytime we go anywhere. Oh, you really? I mean? Like, yeah, pretty much. Like he'll just have like a slew of them. I'll be like, I'll bring some cameras. He's like, no, 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 no. I got them. Don't worry about it. I got all the cameras. That's a good now. friend to have though. <laughs> is it? Oh, but yeah, but it makes you feel bad. It's like, man, let me put some cameras out. You know, it's like, <laughs> But he's like, no, no. He's like, I, I got him. Like, I got a bunch of cameras. Don't worry about it. You know, so, but, um, but anyway, like there was a, that deer was actually crossing that two track further up. So he does spend some time on the top of that ridge. I just would have never guessed it was, right. um, you know, it would have been, it would have been that day, but that's an instant, that area, that place, like you have to be patient and hunt because you, you may miss the one day that that deer is going to come through and tend that scrape or that he's going to come through that funnel or you know, or whatever the case is, you know, or, you know, or cruise that doe bedding area or whatever it is, you know, it's, yeah. if you're moving, you miss it by a day, you, you know, you could hunt two weeks and not see that deer. Yeah. It sounds like a spot that you might not see a lot of deer, but when you do see deer, it's going to be the, the deer, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like I've got a couple of those spots here in Michigan. It's like, you're not going to see a whole gaggle of them, which is probably a good thing if, unless you like seeing deer, but mm-hmm. typically those bucks aren't going to be hanging out with a gaggle of deer really yeah yeah and so yeah exactly that's kind of like this 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 place it's like you're gonna see you know you're not gonna see a lot of deer but the chances of you seeing a deer of a lifetime is there yeah you know and you know you could possibly see a deer that you'll never ever see again in your life type yep. of thing yeah um you know all wasn't lost i moved spots that day i went to another area it was at this point off the back side of this ridge um and you know ended up having i guess it was like a uh Pope and young eight point come through and let him go. And, um, cause I was planning to go back over Thanksgiving, but we didn't go back home for Thanksgiving. So my wife's whole family got the Rona. So oh, that's, sure. that, yeah. So that squashed us going, going back to, um, to try to do that hunt again. So yep. I ate a tag when I could have filled it, but you know, such is life. Yeah. Ah. Well, I want to be respectful with your time too, man. We've been on here for almost two hours now, but I do have a couple rapid fire questions for you that I like to do at the end of some of these podcasts. So after this, we'll wrap it up, but a couple on the spot here. If you could have any state in, you know, the Midwest to hunt whitetails and it cannot be Iowa, what state Mm -hmm. is that going to be? Oh man. Um... I would say probably Kansas, although I've never hunted it. I mean, I'm hunting it this year, but just like the opportunity to kill 
giants is there. Um, oh, yeah. and it's, you know, and you know, the idea of like ground hunting and glassing, you know what I mean? Is, is interesting to me, but there's a little spot in Missouri that I, that I kind of semi fell in love with this past year. That's some boat access and Chad within 30 minutes of us being there, essentially, you know, he jumped the deer that was probably in, in the one sixties. And I ended up almost getting run over by one. Literally I could have reached out, grabbed his antlers and rodeoed him. He ran Jeez. by me that close <laughs> and he was, he was in the, and he was in the one fifties. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, we found like a little, we found a good little spot. Um, and so it would be one of the, it would have to be one of those two. I got you. Okay. Um, if, if fixed blade or mechanical broadheads mm, fixed. Okay. Do you have a specific, like, are you, you know, a specific brand that you're loyal to? Yeah. I mean, I shoot the, the day six gear Evos. Okay. Um, and I just, you know, I have a small wingspan and so my draw length isn't super, super long. And I was listening to a guy, you know, this is years ago, talk about mechanicals versus fixed blades. And he's not a advocate for one or the other. He's at, he's an advocate for the right tool for the right application. Yep. And, um, and what he was basically saying was, is that, you know, his recommendation is, is like anyone, any guy who shoots a bow that draws, I think it was like 60 or 65 pounds and has like a 28 inch draw or better, like shoot mechanicals if you want to, right? Cause the energy loss you're going to have on that thing opening isn't going to, isn't going to be a, to a detriment, right? He's like, but anyone who has a draw length, it's like 26 and a half, 27 inches, right? You're pulling, even if you're pulling 65 pounds, if your draw length is under 27, he was like, you should be shooting fixed all day. He's like, because you're just never going to create enough energy. You're going to lose so much energy on, you know, what we might call like marginal shots, you right. know, or maybe you, you make a bad shot. You're losing so much energy on that broadhead opening that you could really do yourself a disservice. So I have a 26 and a half inch draw. So I switched to uh, fixed blades. Okay. I gotcha. Now, if you had seven days to hunt and you can break these seven up or you can group them together um, mm-hmm. throughout the year, when are you taking those seven days to hunt? Man, um, <clears throat> I would like to take a couple of them right around like the 18th, 19th, and 20th. Um, of October? Of October, yeah. Um, I've running trail cameras. I've had some of the better deer in the areas that I've hunted happen to like hit scrapes and open up scrapes and start to move then. Like I've gotten some pretty – you know, mature deer make, make some mistakes within that window. And it actually is consistent with what Greg has seen, you know, decades of running truck cameras that he's, that he's run all over the place. Like he's seen that too. And I mentioned it to him one day and he was like, it's funny you mentioned those dates. He's like, cause those are the exact dates that I see mature deer get up on their feet for like the first time in daylight and start to move. Mm-hmm. And then they'll kind of like, then they'll slow, then they'll chill out a little bit. And then it's that classic, like, you know, 26th 27th 28th you know what i mean type yep. of time frame yep. you know maybe um uh and then you know we'll, we'll just say that halloween time frame like the three days like around halloween yep. right like you know whether it's the 30th 31st and the first or whatever the case is like those are always always good and then for me it's probably um man i'm torn between like the sixth seventh you know eighth type of time frame because i've had good luck then but i've also had like i've seen really good action like 
around like the 11th, like the 11th, 12th, 13th, or yep. like 12th, 13th, 14th. So I'd probably go 12th, 13th, and 14th, like that second week in November, okay. somewhere, somewhere in there would probably be like the three different times I would be, if I could only choose a couple days out of the year and I had to split them up between a couple different time frames and to try to optimize my time in the field, yeah, it'd probably be those, those three time frames. Okay. Good deal. Last one here. If you coming up to the 2021 fall, mm-hmm. if you can call your shot on what day, what day is it going to be? What day is it going to happen for you this year? Uh, man, I don't, it's, uh, let's see. <laughs> it'll be, it'll be the 17th of October. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. This will be our time. I- this is on the record now, so we can go back. <laughs> The reason I'm saying that the reason I'm saying that is because there's a primary scrape area that I have a few deer that are hitting. If any of them made it, um, that was the window when they started opening. That was whenever I started seeing like those mature deer start to move, okay. and they were all kind of in this one one area. Um, and that's the because I I hunted him on the whatever day was like the 17th this year, and he showed up the 18th, and I sh- hunted him a week later, and he showed up the day after I hunted him. So. Yep. It's, it's that window, you know, it's that, that day and it would be whatever that Saturday is, put it that way. Cause I can't hunt Sunday. So, yep. so whatever that Saturday is, is the day that I'm going to, the day that I think I'm going to get it done. Plus or minus a day or two. So <laughs> right yeah, there. yeah, yep. exactly. Exactly. I got, you. I got you. Give me a, give me a buffer for Pennsylvania having shitty game, shitty time uh, dates. I know, man, I will give you a buffer. I will. Right. And I'm going to be calling you or you're going to be, you know, hitting me up. Hey dude, it happened. So when it does right. happen, we're doing another podcast for it. <laughs> deal. Deal. <laughs> well, good deal, man. Hey, and last thing I want you to tag or, you know, throw everything out there that you're doing, um, social channels, uh, skull brew, everything kind of let everybody know where they can find everything that you're doing. Sure, man. Well, first appreciate you having me on and giving me an opportunity to talk to the, to the folks that listen to your podcast. But, um, if you want to check out the stuff I have going on, you know, truth from the stand.com is one place, you know, the podcast is truth from the stand deer hunting podcast on iTunes, all the places where you'd find podcasts. Have a YouTube channel. I try to put up a video a month, and the, all the podcasts are there as well. You know, I primarily focus on DIY, you know, public land, bow hunting, travel hunting, that type of stuff, and that's really what the um, YouTube channel is kind of geared around, as well as like gear modifications because I dig, I dig making my own gear and, and, and modding stuff. And then Skullbrew Coffee Company. It's uh, SkullbrewCoffee.com. Uh, if you're into coffee, it'd be rad if you would check it out and. Uh, Otherwise, man, you can catch me on Instagram, Truth from the Stand on Instagram, Facebook. You know, I hang on there mainly on Instagram, uh, but always down to talk deer, man. So if you're out there and you want to chat, you can drop, slip into my DMs, as the kids say. <laughs> there you go. Um, slide into my DMs, I guess is how they say it. I'm, I don't know, uh, maybe I'm too old to know how they say it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I'm there hanging out. So if you want to, if you want to chat, you know, send me a DM and uh, we'll, we'll strike up a conversation cool man well clint thank you very much for coming on i really greatly appreciate it we'll have to do this again for sure if you will come back on i would greatly appreciate having you on again so yeah absolutely man for sure anytime yeah thank you very much and uh i guess we're gonna sign off and hopefully everybody enjoyed that so thank you very much clint and i'm just gonna end it abrupt ending i just like doing abrupt so here it is boom we're done and there you have another great episode clint thank you very much man for coming on doing this i greatly appreciate it I'm going to remind you guys again, please go to iTunes, leave a five-star rating, leave a review. That would be greatly appreciated. Don't forget to go to IamHumanimal.com. Check out all the stories, all the new content we have up there. And hopefully you guys have a great, safe weekend. Thank you guys very much, and we'll see you right here next week.
Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.